Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Monday morning, August 29th, 843-661-0937 is our number. It's game week. Forget the Atlanta yes. Braves. Forget the New York Mets. Forget the Philadelphia Phillies. It's college football season. And uh, let me, unless you're a Nebraska fan, wow, how the mighty have fallen. Oh, um, it's all that. When I was a kid, the one football program, if you just held my feet to the fire and said, hey, what one program was the most dominant program of your youth? Now, once again, the Hurricanes of Miami were really, really good, but I don't know if that would have been my youth. In my youth, uh, when I was real impressionable, here you go. When the TV guide had the rosters of every team that came on that Saturday afternoon, um, kind of with a helmet silhouette, Nebraska was the team that comes to mind. Um, once again, this would have been in the, um, in the 70s, uh, probably mid and late 70s when I was most uh, impressed you know what I mean? With, with, with the heroes of college football, Nebraska would have been the one team. Notre Dame would have been another. Michigan, Ohio State. I'm trying to think of the Southern team that really uh, was so impressive. I don't know. I mean, in the 70s, who was the best college football team in the South during mm. the 70s? Kind of an interesting. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, Georgia came along in the 80s with Herschel Walker. Um, Bobby Bowden had to really turn it around at Florida State. Who was the dominant college football team in the 70s? I guess it would have been Bear Bryant in Alabama. Yeah, okay. That's a pretty good guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't remember that to be the case. But the, the, the dynasties of my youth were Michigan, Ohio State, Notre Dame. But more than anybody, Nebraska. The Nebraska-Oklahoma game was uh, as good as it got during the college football season. I hadn't thought of that, but that's kind of interesting. I mean, now the sport's pretty much dominated by the South. Um, the SEC and Clemson have been, you know, the dominant stories of college football in recent day. Um, well, I mean, Ohio State holds their own. Oklahoma holds their own. Um, Nebraska has just fallen in a unbelievable fashion. And you wonder why uh, the job's just not that attractive. It's not that appealing any longer. This is not um, Nebraska football of the 1970s. We've had this mass migration. I'll give you a quick story. So there's a sports bar at the beach that I don't frequent, but I'll go into occasionally and um, and have an adult beverage, eat a nacho or a chicken wing or something like that. Um, there was two guys, um, Freehold, about your age, uh, somewhere a little bit younger than I, but not, not, not pups by any stretch of the imagination. And I was not eavesdropping, but I could hear the conversation. Now, now understand that when you go to this um, sports bar, half the cars in the parking lot aren't cars, they're golf carts. They're, they're retirees that have driven from, you know, Rev's not exactly, uh, yeah, you know exactly yep. what I'm talking about. But but the guy's sitting up with a plate of nachos. The other guy's got a couple of beer, and they're sitting there having small talk. The um, I think the golf was on one TV. A couple of football games were on the, the other television. And, um, and one of the guys said, look, man, I know it's hot and humid for three months, but I've not shoveled any snow in six years. I ain't going back. I've not lost a oh, single thing yeah. I get that. up north. And once again, they were complaining a little bit about the heat and humidity, but it was like, hey, I can tolerate 60 and days. That's why I don't complain. Have you ever heard me complain about hot weather? No, no you don't. I, don't. I do. Because I don't. But I, I, I grew up in Ohio, and I can remember shoveling snow and the, the minus 20 temperature. And I, I just never want to do that again. I can't imagine that. But it was almost like the guy was like, they, they were in full agreement, you know, like, cheers to that, you know, cling the glasses and. <laughs> Yeah, I had shovel snow. <laughs> I watched a little of that game. By the way, I was proud of Ryan Holinsky. I mean, he yeah. obviously did did a great job. Um, but 
I was impressed with the amount of red in the stands. I mean, they're in Ireland. It's right. It, they're a brand. So the so the fans are there. Well, I mean, whether it, they're losing or not, they are one of the iconic brands in all of college football. I mean, if you're Clemson that many fan, fans fly to Ireland for that. It's game? Nebraska football. I mean, it's still. It's almost like they're trapped in a time warp. They still believe that they're perceived as they were back in the seventies, and they're simply not. I mean, at what point in time do you say, "Hey, we're not who we used to be"? You know, I mean, a lady that's real beautiful in her 20s and 30s, and she may hang on a little longer than that. But at some point in time, she looks in the mirror and says, wow, I mean, time is undefeated. Okay, I've held on better than most, and I fared better uh, than the majority. But but eventually, it is what it is. And I think Nebraska, yeah, I mean, they're still a loyal fan base. But I think the loyal fan base fails to understand. Oh, that's probably, if I'm being judgmental here, Um it's just a different era I was gonna in say, college be care- football. Be careful because you could talk about the Gamecock loyal fan base, too. Well, I mean, we're crazy. We know that. I mean, we've never won multiple national championships. We're just absurd. I mean, we're, we're we are nuts. a loyal fan base. We show up. Sure we are. But pay I mean, them all that money. But, but Nebraska should be a loyal fan base. I mean, Nebraska's won multiple national championships. They're one of the iconic brands in all of college football. In 1981, who did Clemson beat for a college football um, national championship? Nebraska. Yeah, I mean that you know Nebraska was always in the running for a college football championship, and um, and now they suck. <laughs> I mean, I mean they you know they lost to one of the premier engineering schools in America uh, in Northwestern, and Ryan Holinsky did was the uh, starting quarterback and played uh, very well. So yeah, congrats to uh, Holinsky, congrats to Northwestern. But it's game week. Yeah, most importantly, I mean, it's it's game, game week. On. And I've already started checking the weather. I mean, it's in the mid eighties. Okay. It'll be a little bit hot and humid. Chance of rain. Imagine that. Labor Day weekend in the South is going to be a 50% chance of rain no matter where you are, what you're doing, or where you're going. I think Clemson, if I'm not mistaken, plays Monday night. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the Tigers yeah. don't play Saturday, but rather um, Monday. That means if you're a Gamecock fan, you pull hard for the Gamecock Saturday and the Georgia Tech wreck, rambling wreck on, uh, on Monday. And it's friend- I hope it remains friendly in nature, and I hope there's some degree of respect and civility that we have in the rivalry. But I'm just thinking about watching Nebraska. You're right, Rev. I mean, they're in Dublin, Ireland, and there are thousands of Nebraska Cornhusker fans. That's who they are. I mean, it is one of the most loyal, intensely loyal fan bases in all of America, but they are a very, 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 very average football team as we speak. And I guess if you've been to the top of Mount Everest, you know what it's like. I mean, the Gamecock faithful have always aspired for that you know wonder what it would be like to be that well i mean nebraska fans know exactly what it's like to be that because uh for what 20 years i mean they had a 20-year run in college football with tom osborne i mean they were as good as anybody period i mean didn't take a back seat to nobody as we like to say but um my how the mighty have fallen <laughs> let's go to the phone here is uh it's breeze to start us out on a monday hey breeze give them boys the golf cards <laughs> Did what Sherman couldn't do, destroyed South. And they can't shoot a gun, never shot a gun. Most of them never even been in a fight. But they show us how to destroy South. I mean, I've never seen nothing like it. I mean, one thing I will say, though, it appears that I've noticed with more and more of my clients up north that more and more of them think like we do, which there is something to be thankful to the good Lord for. But, like, I just got a new client from New York, and he said uh, he's the only one in his entire family of five that's conservative. He said the rest of them are just crazy. So, 
you know, so if you got so if the whole five, if all five of them are dudes out, you only got one out of five to think the way we do. The other four will be over here voting from for our back who's got dementia and is a pedophile. So but let me ask you something about college football, kid. The average team in Carolina, would you say what's the percent what's what's the diversity ratio there in black and white? Hub. Do you think that those 90% of the African-American kids would like to see it be 80-20 or 50-50? I wouldn't imagine that. I I would imagine. They've got a tough on a Monday, isn't it? Not really. I mean, I've thought of that a lot. I mean, sure. I mean, if we're going to promote diversity and equality, then, you know, let's do it all over the place. Well, I've been told by some college, some white college athletes, they say that, you know, it really is almost worth it. He goes, yeah, a lot of people will say that the black athlete is a better athlete than us or better than us. He goes, but the truth of the matter is there's a lot of white kids that can be playing college football, but the environment for them is so hostile. And it's racism, okay? He said, you know, if you're the white kid down there, you got to watch everything you say. But all jokes about white folks you know, that, you know, are, are, are fair game. You can't anything you say could be considered racist. You can't listen to your music because that's racist. It's racist. If you listen to country music, Southern rock, whatever, you're racist. So you got to listen. You got to listen to the woke music. If you have any other opinion other than woke political opinion, of course, then you're racist. And the truth of the matter is, you know, uh, being a white kid playing college football is, is tough. The stuff a lot of them won't admit it, but a lot of them tell you. I mean, it's a hostile environment, and 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 all of, and it's all catered. You know, the way everything in there is is catered toward the majority, and the majority being African American. You know, and so and again, you let somebody say, well, maybe they're just better. Well, wasn't that what they said in the sixties? When they said, you know, you couldn't get all, they, they said, well, you know, you need more all. Uh, more black athletes and all, and they would sit there and, uh, you know, and just that and the other. And, and, and you know, and they would, or you need more African. I mean, the, the bottom line is if you're going to be fair to one race, you need to be fair to all races. And I'm just, and, you know, and I wondered if, you know, anybody else will admit to what I just said that um, college football for the average white kid is, is a tough proposition. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. See, I can't comment on modern football. I mean, I can comment on when I played. And when I played, th- there was not a lot of attention paid to whether you were black or white, whether you conservative, Republican. But, but there wasn't CNN. There wasn't Fox News. There was not. I mean, I didn't know what the New York Times was. I mean, if someone has said to me as a 16 or 17-year-old, hey, did you read what the Times said about high school athletics? No. What, what Did they tweet about this or Facebook? I had no idea. I mean, that, that world was so distant to anything I could imagine I mean, you know, did I need to know? I I have no clue. I mean, I really don't. But I'm going back, you know, once again, I don't know what a locker room's like today. I don't have any idea whatsoever what a high school football locker room, what a college football locker room. Certainly don't have any idea what the NFL locker room looks like. But it's got to be different. I mean, it would have to be impacted by some of the uh, social media and uh, the, the media in general uh, some of the racial division in America today. Um, I, I just don't remember us talking much about, you know, the left tackle. How many how many black guys are on the defensive line? How many white guys are on the offensive line? I mean, once again, I'm just going back to when, when I played. It was kind of all for one and one for all. Is that the case now? I mean, Breeze is suggesting it's not. 
but but I, I can't I don't know I mean I don't have any evidence any information I mean I've got an opinion and obviously the opinion is it, it's got to be different I mean it would have to be affected I mean some would say adversely some would say positively but I mean the locker room in America today would have to be impacted or affected by the chatter that's out there that was not out there in the late 70s and early 80s. Wow. When, when I played, you know, high school athletics. I, I, back I, in my day. Yeah, back in my day. Back in the day, the older I get, the better I was club. <laughs> I'm the president of the older I get, the better I was club, especially uh, at a tailgate. After a few cool ones, then you really begin um, talking about that, that, that 30 yard. I've told Rev uh, the other day, talking about when I went to Walford. Uh, the coach liked me, so he let me run the 40-yard dash, 39 downhill. It was a 39-yard <laughs> dash, and it was downhill. Because your, your metrics and measures looked a little better at it. if that was the case. But, but no, I mean, to Breeze's this point, I don't have any idea. I mean, I don't know what, what is fundamental. I mean, we know society's different, right? I mean, we know that without question. I mean, I, I think anybody that suggests that the media and social media and the chatter and the – the attempt to divide. I mean, if you believe that's been, I mean, we as a society have been immune to that. It's not a fact affected, you know, how we conduct our lives and how we live and, and, you know, where do we go and what do we do and who do we hang around with and what do we believe in? I mean, yeah, I mean, I think all of that has been impactful, but, but as it relates to the locker room, I, I don't have any idea. I mean, I, I really and truly don't. I'm just going back to my day. And in my day, I don't know that we ever thought much about the left tackle being a white guy or black guy. And him missing the block, it was just the left tackle that didn't get the job done. The, the cornerback that got beat on the go route. The linebacker that didn't fill the gap. It wasn't, um, hey, we, we got to get a black guy doing this. We got to get a white guy doing that. It was just kind of all for one and one for all. Um, but once again, there was no Twitter. There was no social media. We didn't put those pads on every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Wore shorts and shirts on Thursday. That was walkthrough day. But, I mean, you didn't, you didn't dress out Monday through Wednesday thinking about any of that other stuff. That's kind of interesting, and I can't, you know, what do young people know today that we didn't know? That would be an interesting question, Reb. As a, as a junior in high school playing high school football, I mean, my world was very limited. I mean, you know, I, I just had a very limited, I mean, I'm an 18-year-old dude. I mean, a 17-year-old dude. I mean, there wasn't but about three or four things that consumed my interest. You know what I mean? And, and worldly affairs was not one of them. I can assure <laughs> you of that. But, but now they're force-fed these narratives. They're force-fed this information, and they've got to do something with it. I mean, you can't shut it down, whether it's, um, whether it's politics, whether it's society, culture. I, you know, I don't know, but you, you, can't, I mean, you can't convince me that a, that a 17-year-old today is able to completely block out all of that stuff on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, news media, um, you know, the teachers. I don't remember, I mean, I'll tell you this, I don't remember in 1980 at Hannah Pamplico High School, I, it never crossed my mind whether a teacher was conservative or liberal. A teacher's union, what is that? You know, the uh, the teacher's agenda, what is that? That's kind of an interesting take. When did all of this take place? Uh, because now, I don't remember any awareness of anything like that when I was in school. No, it, we lived, I mean, but you weren't oblivious. I wasn't oblivious. I mean, I'm not a moron. You're certainly not a, a moron. I mean, we were aware of the world around us. I mean, I took into account the world around me. I just don't remember it being very political. I don't remember information making its way into the locker room that was intended to create division or, you know, silos or, or you know, um, 
hey, this this group over here believes in this, and this group over here believes in that. I'll give an example real quick, and then we'll take our break. Um, Jokak, Jovak Nokovic. Uh, I'm not saying that right. Is it, is it Jokovic? Yeah. Uh, Novak Jokovic, the tennis player, um, was allowed to play in Wimbledon. He's the number one player in the world. I think, well, I mean, he and um, what's the guy's name? Uh, there's two or three that are kind of back and forth. Well, he and Nadal, Rafael Nadal. They're back and forth for the number one player of the world. Uh, Federer's kind of um, seen his better day and and ridden off into the sunset. But um, but Novak Djokovic was allowed to play in Wimbledon. Now, we know what Archie Bunker said about England. I'm not going to say it because I'll get in trouble. But we know what Archie Bunker said about England. It's a blank country. Um, but they allowed Djokovic to play at Wimbledon while the land of the free home of the brave said thank you, but no thank mm-hmm. you. In other words, Djokovic could play in Wimbledon, and listen to what the bunker says, not play in America. We're professing to be, you know, land of the free, home of the brave. No, we're not. We're not anywhere near land of the free, home of the brave. Uh, and it's a travesty that the nation that was founded upon what? Individual liberties and freedoms. I was thinking about, you know, how ironic it is for Djokovic to have been allowed to play in England, remember the I mean the King George and the the, the Revolutionary War was about us separating ourselves from no taxation without representation. Boston Tea Party, out comes America, rugged individualism rears its head, uh, a force of good in the world today. Well, England, look at yeah, England said yes to Yokovich. You're unvaccinated, but we're not that afraid. We, the bastion of liberty and freedom, said to Yokovich, stay home. But I mean, if you're not willing to play by our rules and get vaccinated, then stay home. He just should have snuck across the southern border. Well, I mean, with a tennis racket in hand, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I just think that's very interesting that Jokovic was allowed to play at Wimbledon, not allowed to play at the United States Open, and the Revolutionary War was about what? Okay. Maybe the wrong team won. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven takes Mondays to make Fridays. A couple of stories that really have endured the time. Obviously, the Trump Mar-a-Lago um, raid. We're finding out a little bit of new information there. The redacted version. Um, I guess the latest breaking news is that the judge seems to be a little bit sympathetic about a special master to this. But um, a lot of folks like me are wrong. I mean, it seems to not be a fishing expedition about January 6th. It does seem to be about these documents, these documents that Trump had in his possession. He says they're not, uh, he says he's perfectly within his rights to keep those in his possession. The DOJ, FBI, the archivist responsible for that says um, not the case. But the other story that I think has really become the story of the moment is the student debt forgiveness. I mean, it's morphed into a, uh, I don't know, Rev, a week-long debate, and it's taken a lot of different angles and um, components within the debate. Uh, the most recent has been, um, I saw over the weekend, really Friday and uh, Thursday, Friday, get through the weekend, I saw a lot of liberals and, and I guess defenders of paying off student debt, the PPP program. Um, that's not a good argument. I mean, I understand the philosophy behind the argument, you know, um, but they're, they're, they're so different in nature 
Um, I actually read some things over the weekend. And the White House even got involved in well, that. I mean, they, I mean, they, they took every member of Congress who had a business that benefited from PPP and publicly called them out. Well, you, you said something about student loans, but you got X amount in PPP. But relief. the structure of the loan was to be forgiven. The government shut right. business down. The businesses would have laid off their employees. The government said, instead of laying off your employees, here's a payroll protection plan we're passing. And if you use the money to pay your employees, 80% of the money had to be gone, had to go to pay the employees, um, the loan will be forgiven. If you go buy a Ferrari, you know, we're not going to forgive the note. If you go on a vacation to Italy, we're not going to forgive um, the debt. And we've seen some shenanigans and some corruptness in this, but, um, but the PPP loan programs, unlike student loans, were intended to be cash transfers from the government. I mean, you can argue whether they should have been done or not, but I get it. Um, I argue we should have never shut down the economy. We would have never needed PPP. Um, you know, segregate people who were at risk and continue life as usual as we possibly can or business as normal as you possibly can. But student loans were never intended to be cash transfers from the government. I mean, it was an agreement you entered into. Um, the The PPP loan was structured. It was voted on to be a forgivable loan if the law was passed. So no one broke a contract in the PPP. Uh, you can like the PPP. You can not like the PPP. You can believe it was a lot of fat cats and business people who got uh, took advantage of the government. Okay, maybe, maybe not. But nobody broke a contract. No one changed the parameters of the loan or the agreement. Um, no president walked in and I would say almost unilaterally, but unilaterally said, you know, the notes are forgiven and the responsibility of the PPP payments go to other businesses. In other words, if you took out a PPP loan, um, you're responsible for documenting what you did with the money. Uh, if you didn't, that business was not responsible for doing the same thing. Um, and the purpose was job retention. You know, worrying about everybody losing their jobs because the government was shutting down. I mean, the government forcibly shut down the economy and the businesses that participate in the economy. That potentially destroyed the livelihoods of business owners, uh, the employees of that business. Um, so, so, look, we can argue. We can argue the merits of PPP. We can argue the merits of student loan forgiveness. But to compare and contrast the two is a reach. It's a stretch because, once again, the PPP was voted on structured to be a forgivable loan program. Um, and once again, nobody broke a contract. When you agreed to pay the government back whatever number amount of money you borrowed to go to college, uh, you signed a contract. In that contract, it, bind, it bound you um, to pay the money back. The PPP, n nobody renegotiated a contract after the fact. Let's go to the phone. Here's Larry in the PD. Good morning, Larry. Hey, guys. Can you hear me okay? Yes, sir. Okay, so I think I finally figured out what is under my skin on this whole thing, and it's and it's two things. The first thing is, is for the conservatives with air quotes around them that have just decided that the, the student loan forgiveness is the bridge that we can't cross, where the heck have you been? I mean, you have let this nation go to hell in a handbasket without so much as a whimper, but now the thing you can't put up with is that a bunch of people who did not ask for it, who don't lobby the government, who didn't, they're going to get something you don't get. That's, that is as Democrat as the world could make you. But you've decided it's conservative, number one. Number two, I, the thing that really bothers me in, 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 in all of this is that the people 
that are upset that what I see, what I hear, want to talk about the individuals that took out the loans and say, well, if you don't pay them back, you've got a you've got a character problem. If the government right now said everybody who's holding a mortgage got $10,000 of it knocked off, would you go, oh, no, no, not me. Not me. That's immoral. I don't want that money. To, I just don't like that, that it's it's dividing just regular people and, and that people are making these moral judgments about the people who stand to benefit from it when they are not the people that petitioned or lobbied the government for this. I don't know who is lobbying the government for this other than Democrats. But in the mix of people that have student loans, you've got a little bit of everybody. So I just I wish that people would, would stick to the federal government has ruined this thing. The federal government has messed up education. The federal government has run up a debt that nobody can pay. Instead of saying, it's not fair for you to want me to pay for your loan, because I don't know anybody who's taking that position. It's, it's a straw man argument. I think that's what bothers me about it. And the, the thing that would take me all the way off of student loan forgiveness 100% forever, and I would never say anything in favor of it again, is if you could file bankruptcy and put your student loan in it. Because then the people who really are bankrupt could get out of it. And the other thing that bothers me, the last thing that bothers me is, you get on your social media, you get on the air, on the radio, everybody you talk to, you say, it's immoral not to pay back your loans, and you're flying a Trump flag off the back of your car for a man who's filed bankruptcy three or four times and left everybody over the back. So where's your morality for your presidential candidate? It's just the inconsistency of it that's driving me nuts. Well, Larry, and here's the problem. And I, I studied a lot of it over the weekend or tried to read a lot. And I didn't try to go to experts. I went to the general public. Here's what's happening that we got to be careful about. You don't need to be mad at me, and I don't need to be mad at you. I didn't, I didn't scheme this up. I didn't build this machine. It's the higher education cartel and the government. I mean, that's who built this machine. Next thing you know, you've got a pitchfork. i got a lantern. I'm mad at you. You're mad at me. We take our eye and focus off of those who built this machine that made universities and the government enormously wealthy, or government lending processors enormously wealthy. But but Larry's mad at Ken, and Ken's married Larry. And that's not the way we need to be about. The, the people who got their student debt forgiven are not, they're, they're not taking advantage of a government system. That They were victimized because you know, the government backstopped the student debt and universities increased tuition 330%. I'm not angry, and I want to be clear. I do believe there's culpability with someone entering into an agreement and not understanding it. I do think there's culpability there. But but they are far less to blame than the universities who got all the money, took advantage of the government backstopping, and the government creating this scenario that allowed universities to increase tuition 330 and 40 and 50% because they knew the American taxpayer was the backstop. That's who we need to focus our anger on, the system that was created, not those that get a little bit or give a little bit too much in the system that they didn't create. I agree, and, and I told somebody, if you took every college loan applicant out and shot them on the courthouse steps, and we don't deal with the problem, in five years, we'll be right back in the situation. No doubt about it. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate that. And I had a lot of notes this morning uh, of comments I read on social media, and God bless these people. I mean, they're sincere. They're genuine. You know, the plumber that didn't go to college, I mean, he's, he's bothered by having to pay off the debt of the uh, the, the lawyer who did and his you know, law career has never taken off and worked out. Guys, that's what the government wants. 
follow the money. The majority of the money, we're, we're, we're talking about a, a machine, a, a system that was set up that, that the plumber nor the college graduate had a hand in creating. That's what I'm concerned about. The, the, the government's real good at convincing Dave to be mad at Ken and Ken to be mad at Larry and Larry to be mad at Dale and, and Dale to be mad at Mike and Mike to be mad at, at Jim. I mean, that, the government, re, I mean, they, I'm telling you guys, there's genius in what they do. Larry and Ken all of a sudden disagree a little bit, so they're frustrated with one another. You know, Ken said that he felt it was morality, you know, in play here. And, and Larry said that he thought Ken was being, you know, inconsistent and conservative bias. Well, I am. I mean, we, we all do that. But, but let's not focus on one another. I'm not bothered that somebody got some student debt paid off. I mean, I, I do think there's some morality in play here. I think there's a lot of morality in play here. But, but the, the moral judgment that led to all this was the federal government taking upon itself to be the guarantor of 90% of all student debt. And what do you think happens to university tuition when the government says, we've got your back? I mean, if I'm running a university, and I consider myself to be moral and decent, I mean, I'm not the most moral nor decent man in the history of mankind. I ain't Billy Graham. I've never professed to be Billy Graham. I'm not Mother Teresa. I've never stood behind this or sat behind this microphone and said, I'm Mother Teresa. But I've got a pretty good moral compass about me. I mean, I, I'm a decent dude, but if you if you put me in charge of a university and tell me that I can, the government's going to lend money to people to come to my institution of higher learning, and they're going to guarantee the debt, you don't think I'd take more C students than I normally would? You don't think I'd take more marginal students than I normally would? You don't think I would um, try to get a little more for that class than I normally do? try to get a little bit more for that um, semester in a dorm than I normally do, that meal plan than I normally do. It's human nature, guys. No, nobody is immune to that. I mean, we're all examples of human frailty. You are, I am, everybody else is. So when I look at the college professor, I don't look at them as immoral. I mean, I don't. I don't look at them as unethical. The government gave them the license to take advantage of a situation, and they do what people normally do. They, they take advantage their of that plan. You better believe it. The, the government is who corrupted all of this, and what we what we don't need to do is get angry with one another. And I saw a lot of that over the weekend. The high school plumber, the guy that you know is out uh, just doing the best he can, and all of a sudden he hears that some of his tax dollars is going to pay off student debt. You know that that he doesn't have any hand in. He he doesn't have any part of this. I didn't create any any student debt. So he's angry at the person. He should be angry at the system. And the two groups of people that we should be most angry with. In order, the government and higher education. You should be most angry with the government. You should be most angry with higher education. You should be least angry with somebody 18, 19, 20-year-old 20, 20 who signed an obscene financial agreement, shouldn't have signed it, and they're culpable. And I think the majority of us know they're culpable to some degree. But if you skin the cat, if you really back up and look at the macro, that person is least guilty and $1.7 trillion of student debt. Where is the money now? I mean, the universities have spent it. I, I got a lot of ideas of ways I think we can, you know, um, address this. And I'll tell you, to, 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 to Larry's point, I tried to say it a good bit last week. Despite them paying off, you know, five, six, seven hundred billion dollars in student debt, we're still, you know, it's, it's about, what, a hundred and, that's about a hundred billion dollars a year. I mean, that's about how much student debt we're accumulating every year right now in America, about 100 So in five years, we're back there again. 
In six or seven years, we're back there again. In 10 years, we're over $2 trillion. That's forgiving the $700 billion. But the model is broken. So let's be angry with the model. Don't be angry with the person in the drive-through line at Chick-fil-A this morning because they got some of their student debt paid back and you didn't. Once again, there is some morality there. There's some virtue there. There's some fairness and equality there. I get it. I understand the frustration. But that person getting $10,000 of student debt paid off had no hand in building this corrupt system that higher education has advantaged themselves at and we, the people, have funded with taxpayer dollars the backstopping of that egregious system. Let's go. Uh, let's take a break. Let's take a break. We'll come back. Got a call on the other side. Back in a minute. So you're mad with me because I got PPP, but the business was shut down by the government order. I'm mad with you because you got some of your student debt paid back, but student debt, I mean, excuse me, tuitions increased 315%, uh, counting for inflation. You see where I'm headed? <laughs> Why are you mad with me because the government shut my business down and I got a payroll protection plan check? Why am I mad with you because the government gave up for uh, forgave 15, excuse me, 10, maybe 20,000, including uh, some of the Pell Grants? You you see where I'm headed? I mean, the government created all this nonsense, but but the government loves it when we're angry yeah, with some, one another. Some in the government appear to really enjoy that conflict. Sure. Keep well, us going at each well, other. I mean, if, if the PPP crowd is mad at the student debt crowd, the student debt crowd is mad at the PPP crowd, nobody's mad at the government. And they're the ones that shut the um, the economy down. They're the ones that um, basically gave carte blanche to higher education to raise tuition by whatever percentage you choose to raise it. But but I'm mad with you and you're mad with me. Neither one of us are mad at who we should be mad with, and that's the damn government. And I'll point out again, it was the official Twitter of the White House that started putting that conflict well, out there. They, they were calling out the PPP. It's genius on their part. Let's get those Genius? with the pitchforks mad with those with the with the torches. Let's get those with the torches mad with those with the pitchforks. Let's go to the phone. Dale in Florence. Hello, Dale. Hey, guys. Um, you know, and, and I do have some of those thoughts about, you know, I paid mine the right way. Uh, where's my $10,000? I do have some of those thoughts. But, Ken, you're right on the money. My biggest problem is, are we going to do this again in five years? Or are we going to do it again next year? Because they did nothing to alleviate the root cause to the problem. Nothing. Nothing's changed. Kids are borrowing ungodly amounts of money to go to college today. They're still doing it. Nothing has changed. How often are we going to do this now? How often are we going to pay a trillion dollars uh, Seven hundred billion or three hundred, whatever it is, uh, because that's just an arbitrary number they picked. They chose an arbitrary number. Let's let's go with ten thousand dollars per person. I'm upset because, like you said, Ken, nothing has been done to alleviate the problem. People are still borrowing money today, and this is the big scam. It's another one of the government scams. It's between them and, and higher education. There's one with them in Fifth Avenue, Goldman Sachs. There's all kinds of government scams going out, on out there. This is just another one. Yeah, link for these people. You guys have a good day. Thank you, Dale. Appreciate it. 843-661-0937. Got about a minute and a half here. Let's go to the phone. Steve in Florence. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, guys. You're right. It is to divide the people. That's what the government does, is they keep dividing the people. I couldn't imagine the damage we can cause if we all came together for one. 
Um, but I wanted to ask, I don't know if you guys want to talk about this at all. What, I know how you feel about, you know, northern invaders coming down, even though I consider myself a, ref, a refugee. What do you think about California and over the next 10 years, I think it is? They're not allowed to buy a gasoline or diesel car. It all has to be electric. Off Thank you, Steve. That's pretty crazy. I mean, I understand, you know, gradually and incrementally transitioning to a different sort of economy. Uh, California would be the part of the pilot program of that. You would expect California to be on the cutting edge of green energy technology. But to suggest or, or to proclaim via policy that they're not going to allow um, gas powered cars to be sold in the year 2035. And I think it's new gas powered cars. I think the used ones will be exempt from some of that. Um, some of that processing. I've got a couple of stories here we'll talk about as we um, as we move forward. But I want to go back to what Dale said. Let's not forget that there are a lot of people who don't borrow money. I mean, not as much as there were, but there, you know, we talk about the student debt, how expensive it is to, to, you know, to finance someone going to college. What about if you've saved all your life and you've accumulated some money and you got to pay all that money to send your kid to college? for fear of your kid falling through the cracks. You know in your heart, I mean, if you're smart enough to have accumulated enough money to pay for your kid to go to college, you're smart enough to know it's probably not worth it. I mean, if you've got that much intellect to accumulate that much money, you probably got enough intellect to understand that all I'm really doing is buying an insurance policy. I mean, unless my kid's going to engineering school, med school, law school, you know, something like that, if they're going to get a, a degree in some general uh, studies program, I'm probably better off keeping the money, but you're so loving of that kid, so so concerned about the system that you don't want to be responsible for your kid falling through the cracks. But let's not forget, college is expensive if you borrow the money. It's also expensive if you don't. I mean, you're spending your hard-earned money far more than you should to pay for college. Back in a minute. Very well-educated and still very sensible. Running for Senate in Ohio, he joins us tonight. J.D. Vance, I know that you are very concerned about student loan debt. Any person looks at the numbers is. Is this the way to address it? I know it's certainly not, Tucker. I mean, you hit the nail on the head that this is effectively a bailout for a super corrupt educational system. The Harvard Endowment has $60 billion. The Yale Endowment has $40 billion. If you want to give student debt relief, you should penalize the people who have benefited from this very corrupt system, right. not ask plumbers in Ohio to subsidize the life decisions of, of, of college-educated young people, primarily young people who are going to make a lot of money over the course of their lifetime anyway. Uh, so no, this is exactly the wrong way to do it. And, and again, if you give this bailout to these university administrators, they're going to keep doubling down on what they've done, which is effectively indoctrinating our kids, not educating them, not giving them the useful skills for the job market, but indoctrinating them and getting a massive windfall from Joe Biden in the process. It's really, really corrupt, and it's going to make that corrupt system live even longer. I just don't understand why Republicans don't say anything about this. Everybody understands that students are so crippled by debt they can't begin adult lives okay that's a real problem and we should not deny it but the people who caused the problem who benefited from the problem who defrauded these students are not paying like why is it so hard for republicans to say hey yale it's time for you to pay reparations to your students not only are they not paying tucker they're actually being rewarded by this policy and that's what makes it such a huge mistake 
And I got to say, Tucker, there is a political dimension to this. Of course, I'm running against Tim Ryan, Democrat from Ohio, who's been on every side. He's flip-flopped on every side of this student debt issue. But if you think about this, two months before the election, Joe Biden has given a massive windfall to Democratic Party donors. It's one of the reasons why I'd encourage people to help us fight back at JDVance.com. But this has very direct implications for the middle class in this country. Tucker, you know as well as anybody that if you look behind a lot of our bad policies, whether it's the student bailouts, the globalization, moving stuff to China, whatever you want to say, it's very often a massive transfer of wealth from middle class, hardworking people to the yeah. upper class in this country. That's exactly what this is, a massive bailout for people who've made bad decisions and are doing very well economically. When I say that, I mean the college administrators, of course. It's hard to imagine a worse policy, a policy that solves few of our problems and harms uh, much more people. And rewards the worst people. It really, it really does. I, I appreciate you coming on. J.D. Vance, thanks so much. 84366-10937 is our number. I mean, that, to, to me, J.D. Vance is, I mean, he's the only Republican that I've heard blame the system, that this corrupt system that has allowed um, kids and families to be taken advantage of. Uh, but I, I said it before and I'll say it again. Let's not forget those who don't have student debt. You still paid far too much for that college well. education. Sure. I mean, I can hear a lot of people today saying, um, you know, I didn't borrow any money for my kid to go to school. Therefore, I shouldn't be responsible for those who did. I get it. I mean, that's the most legitimate argument you can make. But you still paid far too much when for you, your kid to go to college. When do you think it transitioned into far too much? Because we've talked about the what the tuitions were back in the 80s, for example, the $700 that your dad paid for a semester. Seven ninety five. So at some point we transitioned. Now we look back and say, well, that was probably fairly reasonable. Okay. But at some point, we transitioned from reasonable to way too much. Well, I mean, I think there are several uh, there's several dates that we need to pay close attention to. But the Obamacare legislation was kind of the, uh, I don't know, Rev, that's when 90% of all student debt became uh, backstopped by the federal government. But, I mean, you can go back the 1958 National Defense Education Act, the 1965 Higher Education Act. That got banks into making student loans that were subsidized by the Fed in 72, some of the Pell Grants started, um, I think in the mid nineties or somewhere there about, um, first student loans were made directly to the students, not to the educational institutions. I mean, I got somebody in the court system that emailed me and called me last week. I didn't answer the phone because I don't want to get in the middle of this, but they called and left a voicemail and then sent an email saying they work in the court system and they know for a fact that people are paying their child support with student uh, loans. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty bizarre to me. But and once again, I don't have any student debt. Uh, no, nobody in my family has any student debt. I didn't stay long enough to accumulate any any debt. And I'm trying as hard as I can to make sure my wife goes. Excuse me, my daughter goes through college without student debt. It's hard. Uh, it's going to be complicated. I have no idea if I'm able to continue down this road. Um, have you thought through? Um, solutions. I mean, we've talked I think, a lot about the issue. We acknowledge I mean, there's a problem. Th there's got to be a debate. Everybody acknowledges Well, I mean, we've got to have a debate. We first, The first thing we've got to do is understand that the plumber who's being asked to pay for the lawyer's student debt, I mean, there is a, an immoral component to that. There, There is culpability with, with anybody who signs an egregious or, or outrageous financial agreement. I mean, you know, once again, I, I think to suggest the student has no blame whatsoever is misleading. I mean, the student does has, have blame. 
Um, I just don't believe they have as much blame as the university system or the federal government. I mean, that's that's the majority of people who have played the game. I mean, the, the student, the kid that graduated from high school who went to a, you say Clemson or South Carolina, talking about football earlier. Um, let's say you're a 17, 18-year-old um, high school senior and you're thinking about going to Carolina or Clemson. Um, you go visit the schools. I don't have any money to go here. My family doesn't have any money to pay my, don't worry about the money. We can handle that. Um, we've got this federal student loan program. Uh, yeah, but I don't know if I'll ever be able to pay it back. Well, I mean, maybe you will, maybe you won't. Maybe the government one day in its infinite wisdom decides to pay back the student debt. Let me ask you a question. If you're in good standing right now with, a, with whomever processes your student debt, if you're in good standing, why would you continue paying the debt? I mean, really and truly think about it. Why would you continue paying the debt when the government's already authorized the repayment or the forgiveness of up to $20,000, including debt, and some of the Pell Grants. No, I mean, I think that we've got to, the first step we've got to take is understanding that, you know, yes, the plumber who went to high school and high school alone is getting taken advantage of. No question about it. And I think anybody that argues this point other than that are being just fundamentally dishonest. I mean, if you're a high school graduate, you, you've made a little money, you're doing okay in the world, and, you know, when your next door neighbor has student debt, yeah, to some degree, you're paying off their student debt. But their student debt is a creation, not of them being irresponsible. I mean, maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But you can't make the assumption that your neighbor's been irresponsible. The irresponsibility lies within the higher education institutions, the system of higher education, and the federal government. That that real friendly deal they've made one with another. Um, because once again, I, I know some college presidents. I know many board members at universities from my political past. I find them to be every bit as decent, moral, and ethical as I am, probably more so. But if you give those people a chance to give a little more than their fair share of the pie, guess what they'll do? They'll normally take you up on it. So all of a sudden, you've got you know college that once was affordable, and it was a um, revenue expected a return on that investment. In other words, you went and got a job commiserate with the amount of money you owe to get that degree or, you know, the amount of um, financial hardship created within the family. That's the point I want to make. It's not just about student debt. There are 25% of people today graduated from college with no student debt. I mean, that used to be 60%. I mean, it gradually goes down. You can imagine because the tuition goes up and, and a lot of people say, man, I just don't have enough money. I mean, I just don't, I don't make enough. I don't have enough. I can't swing that. I mean, there's just no way that I can send my daughter to Carolina or my son to Clemson. I just can't swing that. I mean, it doesn't work in my budget, house payment, car payment, you know, insurance payment, uh, you know, a home equity line for a whatever, you know, fixing the roof last year. Um, and now you got this, you know, this, um, this $25,000 a year tuition cost and the average American family says, I can't swing that. But you don't want your kid to fall through the cracks. And higher education knows that you don't want your kid to fall through the cracks and you're willing to pay anything it takes. I mean, you're, any, any, what, what do we say for our kids? I mean, we'll do anything, right? I mean, we'll do anything for our kids. We're proving that. So, so the point I'm trying to make, and I've tried to reiterate over and over and over again with clarity. Over the weekend, I read a lot about people with PPP loans um, being angry at, excuse me, the people with student debt forgiveness firing back across the bow, you know, at people who had PPP loans. They're, they're nowhere near the same. I mean, that, that's a silly debate, but, but the debate is unnecessary because, once again, 
the PPP loan program came into place because the government shut down the economy, right? I mean, the last thing a, a, a business owner wanted was to get in bed with the federal government. But when the federal government said, hey, Mr. Business Owner, hey, Miss Business Owner, you got to shut that business down. I mean, you know, the government left the business owner no choice but to kind of get in bed with the government program, but they were structured to be forgivable loans. When the law was passed, we knew these loans. If the business owner used the PPP funds to pay their employees for a business they couldn't open, that's smart, isn't it? Um, th- there was no contract breach. Nobody broke any language of the contract or letter of the law. Um, nobody changed the parameters of any of these loans. No president walked in and unilaterally said, um, hey, you PPP, um, you PPP, uh, PPP recipients, your debt's going to be paid by other businesses who didn't get the PPP money. I mean, we always knew. Now, once again, you can argue good program, bad program, wasteful program. You know, um, it lacked oversight. I mean, we know now that a lot of it was waste, fraud, and abuse. But but the government instituted the program understanding and structuring in a way that it was going to be forgivable loans before the law was ever passed. That's not what the student loan program is. Somebody borrowed money to go to college. They paid a note. Excuse me. They signed a document saying, I agree to pay this money back at some point in time. Um, And they're not doing that. So there is some culpability and there's some moral hazard here. I think you're a little bit naive to not believe that at least part of this is centered around that. But, But the point I try to make earlier and I'm trying to make again is the PPP recipient's not the bad guy. The person who had their student loan forgiven or percentage of their student loan forgiven is not the bad guy. It's the government. I mean, the government ordained and orchestrated all of this nonsense. The government said to the business owner, you can't open your business. And the business owner said, what the hell am I going to do? I mean, how am I paying my bills? How do I keep my people employed? I've got 100 families, you know, depending on me opening this business and sustaining this business and remaining moderately profitable. And they said, well, I'll tell you what, we're going, to, we're going to create a program. We don't have the money, but we print money out of thin air all the time. So, so we should be, I mean, if you're mad with somebody for getting PPP money and not paying it back, you should be angry with the government for creating that program. If you're angry uh, in a similar fashion as someone who, has, who is getting their student debt retired or forgiven, you should not be angry with the person getting that student debt forgiven. You should be angry with the federal government. That's who implemented this program that has created these opportunities of, of in, you know, just moral hazard all over the place or, you know, the immorality behavior of or the, 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 the it's not immorality. It's not immoral for a business owner to take money from the government, and not pay it back. It's not immoral for somebody in the, in the private sector to take money from the government, and not pay it back. The immoral part of this is that the people that didn't borrow the money are on the hook, but that's the government. That's the point I'm trying to make. If, if Dave Baker's mad with me and I'm mad with Dave, Dave's mad with me because I got PPP. I'm mad with Dave because he got student debt forgiven. Who are we not mad with? Who are we not frustrated about? <laughs> the culprits. The government. I mean, that's exactly right. And, and you asked me a second ago, are there solutions? Of course there is. Make the university have skin in the game. If we're not going to abolish the student debt program, I mean, I think that's the answer. I'm going to abolish the student debt program and, and force the, the, the cartel of higher education to, to market correct. 
I mean, if I had a crystal ball, excuse me, if I had a magic wand or, or if I had, you know, the, the keys to the liquor cabinet, so to speak, that would be my first initiative. Abolish the, the backstopping of the federal student loan program. In other words, let the universities decide and let banks decide who gets the money or who doesn't, who's a worthy recipient and who's not. But we can stop a little short of that. Make the university, make, make them co-sign for one half of the debt, two-thirds of the debt. We're going, we're going to loan this kid $65,000 to get a degree in Greek literature because you've got a prestigious Greek literature department. But, but rest assured now, if this debt ever goes and uh, if this def- if, if this debt ever goes in default, we're coming to you for 65 percent of the money. Now we're going to the kid for 35 percent, but but we're coming to you for 65 percent of the money. Watch the enrollment shrink. Watch some of the programs in universities all over the country that don't provide ample opportunity to reap the benefit of that degree. Watch those programs go away. See, that's the scary part of this. These false economies that are built built around this this faulty business model. Um, how many fewer chicken sandwiches does the Chick Fil A serve at the University of South Carolina, or the Bojangles at Clemson, or the are the you know the wing joint at Coastal Carolina? I mean that's where we are. We, we've created a false economy. There shouldn't be this many kids in college anyway. They they shouldn't they certainly they shouldn't owe one point seven trillion dollars in student debt. It's an absurd business model that's been allowed to exist because, once again, higher education does a a great job at lobbying, you know, general assemblies all over the country, the federal government and the Department of Education. I would allow lottery funds to be used to fund apprenticeships, start businesses. Why does a 529K, well, in other words, why can you write off the amount of money you spend to get your kid educated? We're already highly questioning whether a college degree is worth it or not. So why is all the lottery money going to fund higher education? Why would the lottery money go to fund apprenticeships or technical college training? I mean, I don't know if it does or not. I, I guess someone that goes to tech can get a, um, you know, a lottery scholarship. But why couldn't the lottery money go, go to a, we talked about um, a few weeks back about a game ward. I mean, would you rather your game ward have a degree in golf management or have ridden with a fellow game ward for two years in some sort of apprenticeship program? Why can't the lottery money, why does the lottery money have to go exclusively to higher education? Let's go to the phone. Here's David in Florence. Morning, David. Hey, guys. Uh, good topic this morning. Uh, I have a question, though. Uh, I don't have any students that never have. You know, uh, I barely got out of high school, but <laughs> that's not... That's a story for another day. But uh, uh, what is the interest rate on these loans? I keep seeing uh, little little snippets of things to where people say that uh, they can't get their loans paid off because the interest rate is so high, kind of like a, uh, a credit card that, you know, that, that may have a 20 or 22% interest rate. You, you pay and you pay and you pay and you pay for 10 years and uh, you're – you know, your balance went down like $5, you know. So uh, I'd be curious to know what the interest rate is. And if it's got a super high interest rate, why in the world couldn't they just relax the interest rate so that the payments went to principal rather than uh, to this enormous interest rate that, that, you know, that I keep hearing about? And uh, I'll hear what you got to say off the air. Thank you, David. I read over the weekend about 90% of all the debt is somewhere between 5 and 8%. 
low five, high eight percent. That's about 90 percent of the debt. Now, there's some exclusive debt out there, less than three percent. There's some over 10 or 12 percent. But about 90 percent of all the debt is somewhere in the five to eight percent range. Um, that's that's about what, two points higher than a normal. You know, I mean, what's the car loan today? I don't know. Is it five and a half percent? I mean, we've had an increase in um, in interest rates over the past six months or so, but um, the, the majority of it is somewhere between five and eight percent. But if you are someone processing this debt, I mean, why wouldn't you try to get all you can? It's kind of a high risk note anyway, right? I mean, we know that forty percent or nearly forty percent. I think it's a little north of forty percent are in default deferment or some delayed payment program. I mean, why wouldn't you try to get? I mean, if you're in the lending business and you're lending money to kids to get a degree in Greek literature. I mean, if I were running the joint, I'd try to get a little premium on the interest rate because it doesn't seem to me to be a real wise loan. The only reason you loan the money, the only reason you're in the business is the government's backstopping it. There's no way you would loan money to a kid, a C student, to go to a half-baked university to get a half-assed degree in Greek literature. There, there's, there's no lending institution in its right mind that would loan a, a red cent to that kid. Now, once again, if that's a wealthy family, an affluent family, and they want their kid to be educated and well-rounded and scholarly, have at it. I mean, you've got the money. Who says that Greek literature is not important? But when you make that investment in higher education today, you're expecting a return on that investment in the marketplace, the job the job market. So if you're lending money, uh, I mean, if Dave Baker came to me and said, hey, man, my kid wants to go to, you know, this um." This, this, you know, C-rated university. He's kind of a C student anyway, so we figured a C-rated university. And uh, he wants to major, uh, major in Greek literature. I'd say, Rev, I'll lend you the money, man, but it's got to be 20%. You know, I mean, that, that sounds like a risky investment to me. It is a risky investment unless the federal government is the backstop. And that's the only reason this model's been allowed to exist and perpetuate itself is the government has been the backstop. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. We've already established that down south, this is already game week, right? SEC football. Yes, sir. And let's include Clemson as part of that is around the corner. So um, the topic of conversation will begin changing toward uh, mid to end week or mid to end week. I've not seen a story like this um, have this much lifespan and the political mainstream for the last, I don't know, couple or three years. I mean, obviously, when Trump was in the office, you know, he had stories going all over the place every day. But but th- there's a there's almost a lot of uh, there's conservatives that don't know exactly where to stand, liberals that don't know exactly where where to stand. There's a lot of unclaimed territory when it comes to the um, the reaction to President Biden's college loan forgiveness slash bailout. Fox News Radio's Ryan uh, Schmelz is in our nation's capital. Ryan, good morning. How are you? Hey, good morning. Great to be in SEC country, especially since this is also week one for Ole Miss football. There you go. Okay, sound like an, uh, an SEC guy here. Uh, we, we may we may um, have a toddy one of these days at the Grove in um, in uh, in Oxford. But uh, Ryan, oh, you should once again. We we talk a lot about politics on this show. There, there are a lot of um, there are a lot of topics or subjects that we hit for a day or so, and and then move on. There's some that have a little more um, lifespan. This seems to be one of those. Um, we've taken call after call after call. Um, what sort of reaction do you hear from inside the Beltway? 
Uh, it's like you guys have kind of said, there really is this mixed reaction. Obviously, this has been something that uh, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party has been trying to push for a very long time. You've seen uh, the Bernie Sanders wing and the Elizabeth Warren wing of the party really want to get student loan forgiveness uh, passed or have something implemented in some way or another. Um, and, and Biden, it was a campaign promise. So you also saw him bring up the legal authority of that, which we can talk about here in a little bit. But um, also you have seen uh, just within the Democratic Party, it's not all hands on deck with this. This is not getting a, a full on support. You saw uh, Jared Golden, who's a uh, moderate Democrat, who came out and said this was an out of touch policy. And you also saw uh, Representative Tim Ryan, who's the Senate candidate in Ohio, uh, raise some concerns about this. And you also have seen Michael Bennett, who's the a, a senator running for re-election in Colorado, raise some some questions about this, too. So these are these are members of, of Congress who are running in very important races up, coming up in the midterm. So that's something you really got to pay attention to and see how this fallout, uh, whether it's going to benefit the Democrats or, or hurt them. You mentioned some of the eventual challenges. I've read a good bit over the weekend about um, does anyone have um, standing? In other words, uh, th- there was a kind of a, a belief right after Biden made this announcement that it would never stand. He doesn't have the authority to do that. I think some things that Pelosi said were played uh, in review. But but now I'm reading some things that wonder whether or not these groups can find standing that a court would take the case that may proceed or not to the U.S. Supreme Court. What, what do you know about that? Yeah, so uh, Cedric Richmond, Richmond, who's a uh, advisor to the president, um, was on Fox News Sunday this weekend, and he was asked about it. He was really pressed about whether or not the president has the legal authority. Uh, and we brought up the statements that President Joe Biden has made in the past, saying he doesn't totally have the legal authority to do so, and also statements from Nancy Pelosi saying that this would have to be an act of Congress if, in fact, they wanted to get student loan forgiveness through. Um, but he did you know, justify this, trying to try, bring up the 2003 HEROES Act, which uh, kind of allows the president to waive or modify student financial programs and also kind of claim that the Trump administration did this uh, when the pandemic started. So uh, you've seen those legal arg- arguments kind of made. And also we have to kind of pay attention to see if any maybe a Republican leaning um, lawyers in certain states across the country provide any legal challenges to this down the road or, or within uh, the coming weeks. Ron, I mean, uh, Ron, as a as a pragmatic conservative Republican, my frustration is it does nothing to address the problem. And, you know, if you give five, if you give, if you forgive 500 billion or, or 700 billion, whatever the number ends up being with Pell Grants and 10,000 in student debt forgiveness, that number will continue to increase annually. I think, uh, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of $100 billion a year, new student debt is taken on by the American public. So, you know, there's a reprieve here, but nothing fundamentally has been done to address the underlying problem. Is there any sentiment in Washington, you're there, I'm not, to address the underlying and, and, and fundamental problem that has led to $1.7 trillion in student debt? Right. And you've kind of seen, I think, a lot of conservatives bring this up in the last couple of days where they've kind of created this new this new issue that that needs to have the finger pointed at it, so to speak, or lack of a better term there. But we're kind of saying, well, look at these. This is not going to address the fact that tuition is out of control right now uh, in many places across the country and, and bringing up how a lot of these universities have billion dollar endowments. Um, but yet continue to raise tuition in many institutions. And we have seen in the past, I believe Senator Rick Scott from Florida has put out a college accountability bill 
Um, and that that's kind of been something you, you I wouldn't be shocked to see in the coming days, trying to get some type of bill passed that kind of, as conservatives would say, hold these universities accountable for jacking up tuition prices for so long. Good deal. Ryan, thank you for your time. Good to hear from you. I hope we talk again. Absolutely. Hotty toddy. <laughs> there you go. Spoken <laughs> like a true um, a true rebel from uh, from uh, Ole Miss. Uh, can you still say rebel? I think you can. Um, and not get any sort of um, any sort of uh, trouble here. Yeah, th- there's a um, – let, let's go to the politics of it for a second. Do we have a call? Let's go to the vault. I want to be respectful of people's time as much as we possibly can. Let's go there. Joe in Hartsville. Hi, Joe. Yeah, good morning. Uh, this is all about re- redistribution. That's all it is. I mean, if you want to tighten up the student loans, you don't give the money to the student. You give it to the university – with the understanding that that student has to graduate in order for them to receive the money. That changes the whole game. You know, you ever tried to give the panhandler out on on 95 there at uh, Irby Street a a bag of food? He'll throw it across the street. He wants money. Anything the government gets involved in is redistribution of wealth, just you know, everything they say, they, they're going to lower the price of something. No, they're not. They're just going to subsidize it more. The Fed has come out and said, okay, we got to raise interest rates, and that's going to hurt the small business and the economy. Well, why is that? They have to make up for these idiots in Washington for spending too much money so we get blamed for it, and we have to pay the price. Why not? Go back to the federal government and say, okay, you have to cut your budget 5% or 8% or whatever. They can never do that. They always have to raise the rates on us because the people up there made decisions, and we're letting it happen. That's the amazing part. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, Joe. You know, I was thinking about it over the weekend. It's worth $600 billion or 700 or $800 billion to abolish the program. Who have you not heard from? Colleges. I mean, how much have you heard from universities? How many how many representatives of universities or the university's lobby have you heard say, um, hey, we're, we're not guilty in this. I mean, this is a deal the government made with a borrower. We're, we just happen to be the ones providing the education. I mean, they, they know how sleazy this deal is. And once again, Rev, I'm not calling people sleazy. That's, that's where you got to stop taking it personal. Once again, we talked a little bit earlier this morning, um, the frustration I have or gained over the weekend is I'm reading on social media because once again, it's, you know, I mean, the Wall Street Journal has a, a more educated perspective, a more informed perspective, but, but the guy on the street vents on social media. The, the lady in the grocery store vents on social media. It doesn't matter what it is. How does she perceive it to be? How does he perceive it to be? And the perception is that people are, 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 people believe they've been terribly taken advantage of that didn't go to college by having to subsidize the cost of someone who did go to college. I understand that. I mean, that would be a, a typical reaction. I get it. I mean, I feel the same way. You know, I didn't go to college. I went for a brief period, not long. I didn't accumulate any student debt. But I've gone on and figured my way through the world, and all of a sudden you're telling me that on top of all the expenses and liabilities I have, I've incurred another one? That was not of my making, not of my doing. Not, not, I don't gain anything from that. 
obviously there's going to be some animus there. There's going to be some resentment there. You would expect that. But but we got to be careful not to be angry at the wrong people. So the all of a sudden the, the White House says, well, we did this because the big businesses that took advantage of the PPP program. You see, I mean, the White House is trying to shift the blame. They're all of a sudden, they want to get the ones that have student debt mad, the ones that got the PPP and the one with the PPP mad, but the ones that student debt. Therefore, you're not angry with who you should be angry with. We're not pointing our energy and emotion at where we should be. And that is first, the federal government, and second, the university systems uh, that, that have allowed. Why has nobody from the college sector come on television and said, hey, I can easily defend been very quiet. the tuition. I mean, I can easily defend why the cost of education has so accelerated. Now, they'll argue, in South Carolina in particular, you know what they'll argue? The state has cut funding in a way they had to make it up. And the only way to make it up was, you know, via the the family of the student, the student themselves. Um, how much money does higher education get from the lottery? In other words, if the state was given, I'm just making up a number here. Let's say the state was given, you know, $500 million to higher education. I don't know what the number is. It's probably not that much. But let's say they cut it $100 billion. Did the lottery make up $100 billion? I mean, have they really taken, you know, a, a cut? That some in higher education will argue the lottery money didn't go to them. It's not direct funded. Well, I mean, you can't, you can't go buy a Ferrari with it. I mean, if the kid's going to use the lottery money, where does it go? It funds scholarships that allow you to go to higher education. Why don't we take a third of the lottery money at a pilot program and allow for that money to be spent on apprenticeships? Why don't we go to businesses all over South Carolina and say, hey, we're going to take a third of the lottery money away from higher education and give to businesses who agree to be a part of this apprenticeship program that gets people specifically trained to do specific jobs. Game warden, as an example. No longer do game wardens have to be college educated. They got to complete an apprenticeship class. Well, I don't have any money to go through an apprenticeship class. No, we got lottery funds here. We're, we're, we're taking money from higher education and we're going to give it to the businesses that agree to participate in these apprenticeship programs. We got to be creative in, in education evolving and we got to be better prepared or we got to better prepare a workforce to compete. In the um, in this new global See, those, economy, those sort of ideas make too much sense. Well, I mean, they'll they, never fly. No, they're, they make a lot of sense, but they're just not they're not lobbied on behalf of. I mean, I don't know how many lobbyists Clemson, Carolina have in Columbia. I mean, I didn't go twenty yards without bumping into one, and I get it. I mean, once again, I'm not blaming. I'm not saying these people are immoral or unethical or or, or you know agreed. I'm not. I'm not arguing that they didn't build that system, right? I mean, USC didn't build that system. Clemson didn't build that system. The lobbyists at USC at Clemson, the presidents at these universities, they didn't build that system. They operate within. But the system is not a good system. It's a corrupt system. And it's allowed for the American taxpayer to subsidize via the guaranteeing of student debt the dramatic increase in tuition that, that has led to 40-some-odd percent being a default deferment or some sort of delayed pay, uh, payment program. If, if colleges were preparing kids to make enough money to pay the debt back, this wouldn't be a problem. You know what they'd be doing? They'd be going to work paying the debt back. But that's not the way it's working. Why? Because college has gotten so expensive. Why? Because government began subsidizing and incentivizing people to go to college. Here's the scary part of it all. And this is probably the reason no Republicans have said much at all, except J.D. Vance. I'm going to give Vance a little credit. 
I mean, he's not a member of Congress yet. He's an aspiring member of Congress. But Vance is the only one that says, let's point the finger where the finger needs to be pointed, the universities and the government. Until we do that, we're not going to fix the problem, and we'll be back in five years with $1.6 or $7 trillion in student debt. We will not have addressed any underlying underlying fundamental problem of this, you know, this, uh, I mean, it's just a corrupt business model. And, and you can have a corrupt business model without people being crooks. I just think the government always, always causes these sorts of things to take place. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. Couple of callers on the phone. Let's go there. Matthew in Chirag. Morning, Matthew. Good morning, guys. How you doing? Good morning. You know, one of the things that still amazes me is how we continue to hear time and time again that uh, Social Security is running out of money. How is it none of these other social programs run out of money? Education, they just keep throwing all money at it. You know, welfare, they keep throwing all money at it. But, again, uh, you touched on something this morning that I think would be a great idea is put a lot more money towards uh, apprenticeships. Uh, I'm not sure if you're uh, familiar with it a lot, Ken, but uh, if you are, let us know. Uh, are you familiar with WIA and TAA? A little bit. Not anywhere near as much as I should be. Well, I can tell you from experience and talking to some people myself, uh, with both of them, especially TAA, which is a product, a uh, byproduct, rather, of NAFTA. Companies that uh, laid off or uh, shut down because of NAFTA applied for a grant for TAA. And they were, uh, and former employees were able to go back to school only for certain things to, uh, to get reemployed. Anyway, one of the things they said, you know, you got to keep, keep a certain GPA, you got to keep your grades up, and uh, whatever you signed up for, whether it's a degree, a diploma, or even or just a certificate, when you started with the program, whatever you signed up for, that's, you know, if you signed up for a certificate to start with, you can get the certificate, but not the degree because you didn't sign up for it. However, if you signed up for the degree and decided, hey, I don't want to finish this, you know, I got enough that you didn't have to because, you you know, you'd already got that fault. Anyway, I guess the theory was it's the government's fault people lost their jobs because of their decision on NASA, and they got to go back to work. Again, talking from uh, experience and from uh, other people, I think that was a good program. The bad part of that is we haven't got the jobs back to replace those. Um you know, a lot of the textile jobs that were lost, we hadn't got anything. People say, well, unemployment's, or rather unemployment's down, unemployment's down. But the jobs that we're getting back, a lot of retail or warehouse jobs, and they're not comparable to the jobs that were lost. Um, but anyway, not to say that any country's better than America. I, I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. But I think Germany's got a real good model for education and higher higher training with the apprenticeships that they have. What do you think? Thank you, sir. Appreciate the call. I mean, the problem in America is we build a system that's predicated on its connection or commitment to government. It's not metrics and measures. It's not what, is it doing a good job or not? Can we make it better or not? It has become very um, networked with government. Um, I read during the break, you know, the South Carolina State Lottery generated about $607 billion. 
I mean, that's a lot of money, man. Uh, and so it's a billion or million. I'm sorry. Thinking of the federal government. I mean, a million. So um, what, what uh, two-thirds of a billion dollars generated with the South Carolina lottery, what are they doing with that money? I mean, I understand it funds education, K through 12 and higher education. Um, maybe when the uh, delegation gets here next week, uh, here's the problem, guys. We, we build a system. And maybe their sincere intent, maybe not. I don't know. I, I mean, I can't question people's motivations. I, I'm not in the in the brain or heart or soul of another of another person. I don't know when they go to Washington do they genuinely, sincerely try to build a, an education system that serves young people and and the families of young people, or is it all about the money? I mean, I think it eventually it's all about the money, but I don't know if it's um at the beginning. I don't know if it's all about the money. I mean, sooner or later, it becomes all about the money because people get to to make wonderful livings out of what all of the money. Um. <laughs> So, so you got $607 million uh, to be spent on state education. What are we doing with that money? In other words, if the, if the state did cut funding for public institutions in South Carolina, why did the tuition at private universities go up? See, I hear this a lot. Well, the reason the public institutions had increased funding is because the state cut their funding because of all their other commitments with Medicare and Medicaid and, excuse me, with Medicaid and, you know, the, the insurance and, and pensions of retirees and all these other sorts of things. Well, I mean, why did why is Walford more expensive? Why is Furman more expensive? I mean, they're private universities. The, the, the federal government loan program and the guaranteeing of student debt is the reason higher education has become so disproportionately expensive i mean that's the but but how do we change it so you've got to break these strangleholds on government take a break back in a minute eight four three six six one oh nine three seven is our number someone's on the phone let's go there david in the pd hello david hey good morning fellas hey hey waited 24 minutes to talk to you <laughs> if if we if we were still on the old uh uh sale sale uh plan where you paid uh 40 40 cents a minute, you'd be in my pocket. <laughs> you'd have to send us a bill. <laughs> we, we're sorry about that's that. Right. That's okay. But um, I, I I heard you say that your your daddy wrote a, a check out, uh, made out to Walford for $785. It was either 785 or 795 Right. Do you remember what year that was? That would have been in 1982. 82. Well, I got a similar situation. I, I graduated from Francis Marion in 86. In um, 1985, I signed up for ROTC, and that qualified me for the GI Bill. So at the, I, I think it was at the end of 85, I got a check from the government for reimbursing for one full year's tuition. It was $1,135, Francis Marion. So that's what, $560 yep. a year? Yep. And, um, but I, I'm not blaming Francis Marion and, you know, and because what, what really, what really is the problem is, and you touched on it, but it, it was in, I think it was in 2009 when, when Obama, um, made all the, all the loans backed by, by the government. And I, and I remember him saying that, that we don't make money off of this. He said, you know, we're, we're going to get the interest that's going to be paid into that, and it's going to pay for itself. But but I bet you I don't know what tuition is at Francis Marion right now, but I know it's, you know, <laughs> no telling what it is now. But it would be interesting to look year by year 
at the rising cost of it, it probably just kept right along with, with inflation until 2009. I bet you it skyrocketed then. That's kind of an interesting take. Thank you for the call. Appreciate it. And and I want to, I want to be. I, I, it doesn't matter to me who's to blame. I mean, I, I, maybe that's the business guy in me. Uh, I'm to blame. You're to blame. She's to blame. He's to blame. You're more to blame this time than you were yesterday. I'm more to blame uh, tomorrow than I was today. You know, I'm not real interested in that. I mean, I think there needs to be some um, uh, some accountability associated with this. But the problem I have with a, with the student loan forgiveness is we're doing nothing to address the problem. We're going to forgive $10,000 of student debt on about 40 million Americans. 40 million Americans will financially advantage themselves at the expense of the American taxpayer. Um, I don't have any idea who those 40 million Americans are, but it doesn't matter to me who's to blame. I mean, I'm not interested in that at all. We're doing nothing to address the problem. The president of the United States is unilaterally agreeing to breach a contract that was made between, you know, a lending institution and a and a, fam- a kid or a the family of a kid, um, but we're doing nothing to address the problem. Being the pragmatic conservative, I mean, once again, I don't think the government should be in the business. I mean, if you want to go pure libertarian, the government shouldn't fund anything to do with higher education. I don't know that I agree with that. I mean, I, I think a, I think an educated population is noble and honorable and probably in America's best interest. But we've got to do it efficiently and affordably. And we're not doing that today. We know we're not doing that today because we've gotten ourselves into a situation where the government is going to print new money to pay off $10,000 in student debt. What we become consumed by is who's to blame and who's advantaging and who's taking money out of my pocket. See, and that's what I want us to not do. I want us to focus on the big picture. Over the weekend, it really began manifesting itself into a debate about, you know, those businesses and business owners who got PPP. Uh, you know, and those who didn't and those uh, individuals who are getting student loan forgiveness and those who aren't. Um, that's the government dividing and conquering. That's exactly what the government is trying to do. The, the government knows that they have been complicit in control of building a student loan program that is unsustainable. They know that. They're not crazy. They understand that in America today, it's unforgivable that student debt is the second sector of debt in all of our economy. People that borrow money on credit cards don't owe this much. Automobile loans don't um don't accumulate to that sort of number. The only number bigger, the only debt sector in our economy bigger than student debt is primary residence home mortgages. I mean that would stand to reason. Well, I mean the the difference in this economy and that economy, Rev. If you don't pay your house payment to the point of you know getting it repossessed, there, there's something to repossess. What do you get? I mean, let's say that let's say I owe a hundred thousand dollars in student debt, and I and I'm not paying the note back. What what do you do with me? I mean, I don't have any assets. I don't make any money. I mean, what what are you going to do? Hang me? I mean, is that where we're going to end up? You know, um, we can't take his car because he doesn't have one. Can't take his home because he doesn't have one. Can't take any assets because he doesn't have any. So just you know, march him out to the to the um, town square. Let's hang him. You know, we'll prove a point. We'll teach these uh, deadbeats to pay their debts. I, I just think we're, we're failing to understand the crux of the matter. The crux of the matter is not those who got a PPP loan or those who got student debt forgiveness. The crux of the matter is the government screws everything up they touch. And until we get government back under control, until we get government out of the business of some of these, um, these economies where the market would be better, 
at, at policing. We're, we're going to always end up in these places. So once again, I'm not angry at anybody who got $10,000 in student debt forgiven. Good for you. I mean, you kind of sort of won the lottery today or tomorrow or the next day, whenever that happens. Um, I would imagine there'll be somebody try to find standing in the court. There'll be some judge that says, yes, that gives standing or no, that does not give standing. Um, the, the problem I have is we're doing nothing to address the fundamental problem. I made some notes to myself over the weekend. Um, 25% of students in America graduate with no debt. About 6% of the 25% have scholarships. So roughly two in 10 of all students who graduate from college graduate with no debt. Um, may, maybe their, their parents or grandparents were more financially responsible, made more money. Um, they, they worked their way through. I don't know, but, but about two in 10, you know, don't owe money. 25% don't owe money, but a 5% are academically, um, advanced. I mean, they, they got scholarships about 25% owe less than $20,000. That's not an insurmountable amount. I mean, I think to get a four year degree in something worthy of getting you a job. Okay. 20 grand. That's not a stupid investment to make, but here's where we get in trouble. You ready? 45% owe between twenty dollars and $100,000, 5% owe over $100,000. Now, the majority of over $100,000 is graduate students, those who go to you know law school or med school or um, some advanced degree. They get a doctorate in something or a master's in something. Um, that, that, you know, it increases the level of debt. Uh, I, I've got, and once again, th- I have no scientific foundation at all, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, I believe this comes into play. And this is where I get real opinionated. And I'm not basing this on anything. Once again, I'm comfortable with those numbers. I mean, I, you know, I transcribe those numbers from some fairly reliable sources. Um, 25% have no debt, but about 6% of those had scholarships. 25% less than 20K. 45% between 20 and 100K in student debt. 5% over 100K. I believe a lot of young people go to college because they're too lazy to go to work. I'm not, I mean, I, I, forgive me for being judgmental, but we, 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 you and I have done this for 10 years and every year Pew Research comes with a, a survey of how important things are in people's lives. And when you look at work ethic, I guess the greatest generation is number one with the boomers, it's number two. I'm not saying we got everything right. Obviously we didn't. I mean, I would be the last year of a boomer. We've goofed up the debt. I mean, we've left our country or our, our generations follow an insurmountable amount of debt. And that's because we boomers are, are largely gluttons. Gluttons for what? Everything. Everything. Give us more of and let the government pay for uh, whatever we need. Health care, retirement. Well, it doesn't matter. Put it on the bill. Put it on the tab. Paid my end, um, so I want mine back. I get that. The math doesn't work. But when you look at the next generation, the following, and then we get X and Ys and Zs and millennials and whatnot, I don't know if they've been encouraged to find more balance in their lives. I don't know if it's just human nature. You know, the, the what's the old saying? Hard times make good times. Good times make easier. You know where it heads. I mean, there's kind of a transitioning from hard men to, to soft men. Um, you know, I, I don't know why, but work seems to not be as critically important to people today as it was in, in generations gone by. And I think if you give a kid an opportunity to go play around for four years, knowing that he's never going to really be on the hook for that debt, he'll take you up on it. Once again, I'm not angry with a kid. I mean, I get it. So so I'm 18, about to graduate from high school. I don't know what I want to do. I have a clue what I want to do. 
But if you're going to say, hey, you want to go to football games on the weekend, stay in a dorm, um, live close to a city that has a lot of party, a partying scene, girls, and, you know, some beer and maybe a little bit of weed, or do you want to go to work? I mean, I mean, seriously, put yourself in that position. We're expecting a lot out of an 18-year-old to believe them to make responsible decisions. And, and you know, once again, I just think there's a – I don't think we celebrate the work ethic in America today like we once did. Um, there was a day if you called somebody lazy, I mean, that was about as insulting <laughs> as it could be. It's not that mm. insulting anymore. Um Parents are guilty of this. Younger parents in particular are guilty of this. I've told this story a hundred times. Maybe today's an appropriate time. My dad told me more than one time, I can't go to that game because I got to go to work. You know, today's society would argue you're failing as a parent. You're putting work before, um, you know, the, the rearing of your child or your child's extracurriculars or, you know, you never went to a ball game. I don't know how many times my dad told me I'd love to go, but I can't because I got to go to work. And I just think there's some beauty in that lesson. And when I look at this, some of these um, student debt numbers and how many kids go off to college and don't graduate, I mean, it's a high percentage that go off to college, have student debt, don't graduate, don't have any degree, don't have any marketable skills. They're just delaying the inevitable. But if the bank said to that kid, hey, man, you've not excelled academically. We're not sure you're a wise investment. We're not going to loan you the money to go get that four-year degree or pursue that four-year degree and then the university would have to decide whether they want to do it or not i mean the university's on the hook right i mean that's their money harvard's got 60 billion dollars in a foundation let them make the decision that's the way it should work if you're a marginal kid if you're an exceptional student you darn right i mean we should build a system that allows you to i mean if you're an exceptional kid with no money i am all about building a system that allows that exceptional kid that has tried their dead level best to go off and get an education to pursue a future that improves their lives and their families' lives. I don't think anybody would deny that kid that opportunity. But if you're somewhat marginal, if you've not demonstrated the willingness or dedication it takes to excel academically, you go to a lending institution like everybody does. And the lending institution says, we just, we, we love you, man. We think you're a good guy. We just don't believe it's wise to put our money at risk in that way. That kid then goes to the university and says, hey, I want to be a student here, but I don't have any money. The university says, we're willing to loan you this money at 7% interest, 8% interest. That's the way the taxpayer has no business being on the hook or part and parcel to that transaction. Let's go to the phone. Here is Mike in Darlington. Good morning, Mike. All right, good morning. I I think you got a, a very valid point there, but I think that the whole idea is we're going we're – Everything is a distraction. Nobody wants to get to the actual cause or the actual problem. They want to fix something around the periphery. So you're always around the periphery. You never get anything fixed. And that's the way government has operated, I I would say, uh, since World War II. Because uh, the reason we had college scholarships was in the 1950s, everybody got scared to death when they saw a Sputnik going over. I remember going out and we were looking at it, and Mom and Daddy and all my siblings, we, we were looking at that thing. That's a Russian thing. It's going over us, and there's not a thing we can do about it. So everybody gets uh, – we've got we got to get uh, smart people working and everything. But we get a lot of periphery, and people say, well – 
uh, what about this? You know, maybe uh, basket weavers are needed, not just missile engineers. And uh, so we're here with this uh, craziness that we've got now where we're trying to figure out pronouns. And everywhere you look, there's some kind of firework or flashbang. But it's all destroying the country. The country is not going to be able to survive unless someone gets it back on course and get and starts calling out all of these proximate things instead of dealing with the ultimate thing. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. Let's back up a half step. I know we got a call and we'll get there in two seconds. Um, in 2021, the state took in about $607 million in lottery revenue. Now, that's not net. I mean, there, there's a big expense to pay the winners. I think for it to be legal, it's got to be, what, 60%? I mean, I don't know what the number is. It's better than half. In other words, the, the lottery has to be engineered in a way that over half of the money you take in go back out to winners. And you got, you know, if you own the convenience store, the sold the winning ticket to get a certain percentage. But, I mean, hypothetically, I don't know this number to be true, but let's say out of the 600 and some odd million dollars the lottery generates, um, the General Assembly has $250 million to spend. I mean, that money's set aside for educational purposes only. I mean, I don't know how much discretion's in the language of that, but this is how you reform things, guys. When you know something's broken, you don't keep doing it the way you've always done it. We're paying off $600 billion in student debt. We're we're generating about $100 billion in student debt a year. We've done nothing to address the fundamental issue. Stick with me for a second. Let's, Let's talk about South Carolina. We can't stop what the federal government does at every turn, but we can police South Carolina uh, in, a, in a more close and unique way. So let's say that the the General Assembly has $250 million. I'm just making this number up. Out of the 607, they end up with about, two, about $250 million net. What if they took $50 million of that $250 million and set aside for apprenticeship programs? Th- these jobs that now require college degrees no longer require college degrees, but they require you to, to, um, to complete a, an apprenticeship program. Um, some of the trades, so some of the um, some of the technical skills. Maybe don't don't even have to go to college. You know, we we talk about four year institutions, liberal arts education, or technical colleges and training. What if you just went straight to work? I mean, what if we partnered with businesses in our state and we said, hey, we've got this program that we're going to invest fifty or seventy five million dollars a year in. Will you match to some degree the funds that we're putting in there? And we're going to try to provide a an adequate workforce for your sorts of the sorts of employees you need. Why, why couldn't we fund an apprenticeship program? I mean, isn't that education related? I mean, I understand higher education doesn't get the money. K through twelve doesn't get the money. That's the big problem. Higher education wants the money. K through twelve wants the money. They want to be in control of the money. But what if we took a certain percentage? I'm just making this number up. What if we took seventy five million of the two hundred fifty million net we get in South Carolina from just the lottery? Forget the general appropriations, just the lottery. And we went to businesses around our state. And we said, hey, we're starting an apprenticeship program that we believe will be better in providing the sorts of employees that you need. And we're going to fund it with $75 million of lottery money. Would you be willing to help? That's investing in your business. Of course, they'd be willing to help. I don't know how much the, the private sector would raise and contribute to that. But then isn't that, more, isn't that a more efficient way and a better allocation of tax dollars? To create a more, I don't know, prosperous South Carolina? To me, it is. But once again, the, the money gets taken out of the hands of higher education. The money gets taken out of the hands of K-12. through And you, you're going to have a lot of pushback when that comes into play. Let's go to the phone. Here's Jim in Florence. Good morning, Jim. 
Uh, so kind of to piggyback off Mike a little bit, I mean, the, the narrative around the FBI raid goes to crap. So Joe Biden cancels debt, and boom, all of a sudden, Ken goes from slamming FBI to calling young people lazy. Uh, now, I can go into all kinds of stats about, you know, the problems that the baby boomer generation has created and how they were really the soft ones, you know, the, the silent generation and the greatest generation created <laughs> this incredible time period in American history. And, and handed the baby boomers something that clearly they couldn't handle um, for whatever reason. But then you also talk about these these apprenticeships, Ken, and I, I mean I agree, I agree in theory, but Ken, you talk about going straight to work. All right, well, what about the fact all the factories in Marion got shut down? What about the factories in Chiral and and Pamplico and Johnsonville? All the business, um, all the factories have closed. So instead of the kids graduating high school and going to the factory and having a fulfilling job with a pension, we shipped them off to college and loaded them down with debt. And somehow or another, these things are their fault. And then furthermore, uh, we talk about um, the work-life balance and you talk about your own father. And well, wasn't your father divorced? My parents were divorced. Their parents were divorced. Everybody was divorced. And we're destroying our families. We're shipping our jobs overseas. There's all kinds of problems, but all we're doing is pointing the finger at each other instead of pointing the finger at D.C. like we should be. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Jim. Now, I'm pointing the finger at D.C. I mean, I, I just you, you got to think outside. And look, all of these ideas and concepts I come up with are certainly not perfect, but we're not even trying. I mean, we're not even – at least I'm trying to think of a different way to conduct business. The majority of people don't even try. I mean, we just, we're arguing about who got PPP and who got student debt forgiveness – and you're mad at me and I'm mad at you. And we're not talking about the central. I mean, the, the, the crux of the problem is government. I mean, that, that, that is, I mean, really and truly. I mean, when all of us look at the, the, the confusion in our lives, and, and Jim's exactly right about the uh, who allowed for the shipment of jobs overseas. I mean, it was government policy. It was NAFTA. And anyway, we got to take a break because we got to, uh, I think Kerry Tharp's calling us That's right. in about four or five minutes. want to stay on target. Stay, stay with me, Jim, because I want to follow back up on your comments. Back in a minute. Takes Mondays to make Fridays, 843-661-0937. Not only is it game week, it's race week if you're in the PD or anywhere in South Carolina or a NASCAR fan in general. Uh, I was all jacked up about the race Saturday night, rained out, got up Sunday morning and watched threat of rain. Um, I watched the race and then went and got in my car and two of my tires were flat. One of my doors was torn off just watching the race. <laughs> Uh, busted two of my tires and tore my door off. Kerry Tharp, president of Darlington Raceway. Kerry, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Ken. That's a pretty good way. That was way a crazy race, that. man. I mean, they were wrecking yes. everywhere. But you're going yeah. to get that when you've got this win and in sort of playoff format. Um, so you go from one style of racing, what I call restrictor plate racing and drafting and all those other sorts of things. Mm -hmm. You got some who had nothing to lose, others who had everything to gain. You get uh, kind of a um, tumultuous 400 miler at Daytona. Um, and now we go to Darlington. The, the playoff field is set. Um, this is the beginning of basically crowning a champion. You got to be excited to be, um, I don't know, kicking all of that off on Labor Day weekend. Well, we really are, Ken, and, you know, the road to the championship starts here at Darlington, and so uh, 10 races, 
Uh, the first one is this Sunday, the Cookout Southern 500. It's one of the crown jewels in our sport and one of the biggest sporting events in the state of South Carolina. But to kick off the playoffs here at Darlington, the track too tough to tame is, is, is indeed very, very exciting. Kerry, I got to believe that NASCAR is always looking at um, fluctuations or adjustments in the schedule. I don't want you to confide whether or not we're being considered for a second race. But but having a uh, a grandstand full of people excited about the race, obviously that builds momentum and positive energy. And if NASCAR does begin changing some dates or shuffling some things around, surely you got a stronger leg to stand on if we do our part Labor Day weekend. Oh, without question, uh, Ken. That's why it's very, very important for us to, to pack the stands and not only show NASCAR, but show the nation that, uh, you know, racing at Darlington is indeed a big-time event. And, you know, we were very blessed when they um, gave us our second race date back a couple years, but we have to we have to stand up for that. We have to earn it. And like you said, NASCAR is, uh, as, as you know, over the last four or five years, been very, very uh, bold in some of their schedule moves. I mean, we're going to have a street race in Chicago next summer. I mean, goodness gracious, who'd ever thought that? Uh, so, you know, it's, I think it behooves us, and it's certainly a, a feather in our cap if we can pack our stands and, and, and certainly, uh, you know, maintain those two races. And uh, not a lot of tracks have two races anymore. So if we're able to keep and hold on two races, it's a win-win situation for the state of South Carolina and certainly this PD region. And let's not lose that. Let's make sure we, um, we've got those two races back in the fold. Let's not let one of those um, slip away. Okay, i got to get you as an expert now. Uh, we'll talk okay. about ticket sales in just a second. Um, mm-hmm. We're heading into the playoff. We go from 16 right. to 12, from 12 to 8, from 8 to 4, winner take mm-hmm. all. Who ends up as our mm-hmm. um, as our champion of the Cup Series? Give me the three or four to pay closest attention to, and then who you think ultimately wins the uh, the Cup Championship. Oh, goodness gracious. I tell you, I think it's so wide open this year, Kim. But if I'm looking at three or four to advance, well, four, say, let's say four to advance at, at Phoenix. I'm going to go with Kevin Harvick uh, as one of them. And they may, people may say, well, he, he was hardly even in it until a few weeks ago. Well, he's in it and he's going to be tough to beat. I'm going to go with Denny Hamlin. I think he's going to be, uh, he's going to be there at the end. I'm going to go with Chase Elliott. I think he'll be there at the end as well. And um, I'm going to go with Kyle Larson. Uh, so I, I think you're going to have uh, Harvick, Hamlin, Larson, Elliott, and the champion. I'm going to go with the veteran, Kevin Harvick. I knew you were going to say that. I had a funny feeling because the last, the last, <laughs> isn't it Phoenix? Isn't Phoenix the last track? Yeah, Phoenix and, the last track. He's pretty good there. Yeah, he's always run real good there. Hey, Kerry, two races at Darlington. Uh, we right. need to do our part to make sure we keep two races at Darlington. There is right. one this weekend. You called it a crown jewel. I'll agree with that. Mm-hmm. Daytona mm-hmm. and Darlington mm-hmm. come to mind when I think of, of NASCAR. Are there tickets available? Are there yeah. other opportunities in field? I mean, t- tell our listeners mm-hmm. how they can become a part of the weekend. Well, absolutely, and and really the the, the weekend starts uh, really on Tuesday. Campers come in. We've got a slew of activities starting Wednesday, all the way through the uh, checkered flag on l- late Sunday night. Uh, but you can get to our uh, website DarlingtonRaceway.com or call eight six six four five nine seven two two three. And let's not forget about that Xfinity race on Saturday at around three o'clock. That's also going to be a an exceptional race, and kids twelve and under are free for that. 
So, uh, and tickets are as low as uh, $35 for that race. So I, I encourage our fans to come out both Saturday and Sunday. The midway is going to be wide open. We've got entertainment. We've got drivers. We've got all kinds of things for, for fans to uh, experience. And so look forward to it and uh, hope our fans can, can show, out, show up in big numbers. Terry, thank you for your time, my man. Good luck this weekend. We'll be uh, paying close attention. Okay, Ken, thank you. Thank you. Kerry Tharp, president Darlington Raceway. Uh, yeah, I watched the race uh, Sunday. I mean, I, you know, Saturday night rains out. I watched Sunday morning. They just wrecked everywhere. Um, but but that's what you expect when, when there's some drivers who have really nothing to lose. I mean, the field's set, you know, other than a couple of three slots. So if you're Kyle Larson or Chase Elliott or Kevin Harvick, I mean, yeah, you can move up or down a spot or two. But in the grand scheme of things, you just you'd go for the win, man. And then you got these other eight or ten who have everything to gain by winning. And if there's a spot of a foot wide, it looks ten feet wide, and they stick the nose of their car. I think there were four cars that ended up not wrecked at the end of the race. Wow. Um and just kind of that's just the way that weekend in Daytona culminates when you end the regular season and begin uh begin the playoffs. So I'm gonna go back to what Jim said, because I think this is a very interesting point. I threw a, a lot of different ideas out there. Those are nothing but ideas. I don't profess to have the solution. I know what we've got now is broken. So let's argue about, let's debate some of these um, some of these changes. Um, are young people lazier today than they were? I don't have any idea. Um, I would argue that anybody at 18 years old, given the opportunity to go to college or go to work, would probably take you up on the college. I mean, there's some unique kids. Who are you know they're they're well established in their maturity. They know exactly what they want to do, and they um and they kind of pursue that golden objective. Most people at eighteen just don't they don't know what they want to do. They're still kind of fumbling around and and wondering uh, what it is they need to do. And when when college was seven eighty five a semester or seven ninety five a semester, you could wander around aimlessly uh, for for a year or two or three and not cause enormous financial distress. You can't do that now, guys. That's the problem. Uh, with the model today, you're expecting an 18 or 19 year old to tell exactly what they want to do and what sort of education they need to receive, and they're going to borrow somewhere between 20 and 100 thousand dollars. 45 percent of all student debtors owe between 20 and 100 thousand dollars. That's a lot of money. Now, but that what are you getting for that investment? I mean, I think that is the debate that we need to have, and and it's eerily. Here's what I know. I've heard a lot from Republicans. I've heard a lot from Democrats. I've heard from people who have um, didn't get a PPP but are getting some of their student debt forgiven. Uh, I've heard that debate back and forth one with another. I've not heard a whisper from higher education. I've not heard, I mean, it's been radio silence from higher education. They know the model's broken, Rev. They understand the model's broken. But, but I think you've got to be careful not to say, well, these people lack integrity and they lack virtue and they're criminals and crooks and they fleece the American taxpayer. No, the government built the model. I mean, I, I'd like to consider you and I uh, a fairly virtuous men. I mean, you know, honorable people that are more times than not going to try to do the right thing. But, but if the government underwrote rate conserv- you know, advertising for conservative radio, we'd probably take advantage of that. <laughs> It's just human nature. And I think to completely sure. discount human nature is not naive. It's downright stupid. Let's go to the phone. Charles and Lamar. Morning, Charles. Good morning. I'm not going to complain about being on hold because I always enjoy listening to Kerry Tharp. He is a wonderful addition to the PD, and we are so glad to have him around. 
my first semester of college was $262 for tuition and about 70 more for books. Just thought I'd throw that out there. Uh, Dave, earlier this morning, you said the White House started tweeting the names of all the congressmen and congresswomen who had PPP loans. Mm -hmm. Uh, What they started tweeting was the names of Republican congressmen and congresswomen who had PPP loans. They didn't do any Democrats. (laughs) Thanks for the clarification. For some reason, they didn't tweet that Paul Pelosi got $7 million in PPP loans. I don't know how that slipped through. Um, I'm kind of a boring guy. I, I live my life. I, I work. I got children. I got grandchildren. Uh, try not to cause any trouble and uh, just uh, go go along with uh, with my life and, and, and try to get along with everybody. And the president of the United States said he had no respect for me and called me a fascist on Saturday. Um, I just hope people remember that when it comes time to vote, that that's that's what we got to deal with. Um, throw one more thing out there that just hit me on top of my head. You know, they ran Bo Pelini off from Nebraska because he didn't win enough. And if Frost wins his next 50 games in a row, his record still won't be as good as Pelini's was the day he got fired. So, uh, Cornhusker fans, put that in your pipe and smoke it. Y'all have a great day. <laughs> Thank you, Charles. Appreciate that. I mean, we, we began the show this morning, and I mean this sincerely. When I was a kid in the 70s, I mean, it was the brand in football. I mean, Nebraska was as iconic as there was. Um, I mean, to think about in 81, I mean, Clemson beats Nebraska for the national championship in 1981. It seemed like every other national championship game involved Nebraska, and something happened along the way. Um, you know, we were talking earlier about Southern football powers. When I was a kid, it was Bear Bryant in Alabama, and there were some other good teams. Uh, Auburn was kind of a story team. Florida was not. Um, and, and, you know, the Danny Ford era of Clemson, uh, they were a really good football program, but not like Nebraska. I mean, Nebraska was an iconic brand in college football, and something's happened over the years. Uh, I mean, Tom Osborne was a legendary coach, and um, I mean, I think they may have not been monitoring steroids quietly as closely as um as they do today or so we say human growth hormones um anabolic steroids is what we called it back in in the day but um yeah they've just their program has become not not just diminished i mean it's a shadow of its former self and when you look at kind of the um the 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 remigration of people i mean i've tried to look at this bino cook talked a little bit about this uh back in the day uh, about Ohio State and Michigan and some of these powers in the Rust Belt, and all of a sudden the power of college football transitioned down south. Well, that's all the people are. I mean, that you know, Georgia's a fast-growing state. North Carolina, Florida, I mean, good land. Uh, Texas. So down south is where everybody came to live, and, and along with that came families and, and athletes and the more likelihood of having great college football programs. But when I was a kid. I mean, the, the the power center of college football, it was kind of Nebraska, Oklahoma, Michigan, Ohio State, Notre Dame. I mean, it was not all about that. Southern Cal was a team out there. Um, Alabama obviously held their own. But but Nebraska has, I mean, it's just, it, it's kind of a, it's a sports tragedy as far as I'm concerned uh, because I'm a child of the, the 70s, born in 63, uh, became a football fan, you know, during the, during the decade of the 70s. And it seemed like every time I turned around, Nebraska was playing in a big, big football game that they normally won. 
you know, they normally won the majority of those games, but um, not any longer. And I think Cornhusker fans, I think the point you made, Rev, was watching them play in Dublin, there was red everywhere. Oh, yeah. I mean, they, they still. I was impressed. I mean, they, you know, I, I don't they, know why. They travel but, well. Yeah, they, they travel well. <laughs> they still believe it's 1970-something. It ain't. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. One of the things I don't understand when I read over the weekend, there are about 40 million people who are going to benefit from having student debt forgiven. 220 million voting age Americans who won't. So I don't understand the politics of it. When you look at African-American, 27% African-Americans owe student debt. 18% of Hispanics owe um, student debt. So I don't understand the the. I mean, the can- I understand buying votes. I mean, I get what a lot of people say. Well, let me forgive their debt. They build that builds some. Um, I don't know some loyalty within. But when you look at the macro, forty million people will benefit. Um, about forty-six million people owe uh, owe student debt. Apparently, six million will make more than the. You know what I mean? The two hundred fifty if filed jointly, and all these other sorts of um, conditions of which the debt is forgiven. Um, there's a bigger macro I wanted to talk about tomorrow. We may um, touch on it a bit today. Um, talked to Robert a little bit over the weekend, Robert Cahaley of Trafalgar. And um, but when you look at so, some of the um, opinions now are the the Republicans are not going to gain seats. You know, Trump nominated these crazy candidates. These crazy candidates can't win. Uh, maybe, maybe not. We'll, we'll see how that plays out. But I still go back to two numbers. And I've tried to be insistent and consistent on these two numbers. The Biden approval rating this morning, as of about 5.30, RCP average, 41.9. The RCP average, wrong track number, 70.5. If, if, the, if the Republicans don't pick up a lot of seats in the House and a few in the Senate, then th- there's something different and odd going on here. I mean, even the, either the electorate has changed that much or the media is able to convince a certain percentage of Americans what the truth is. Because never before have that set, those two numbers been this dramatically in favor of the party not in power. Hmm. And if Biden, I mean, once again, I don't buy it. But, but if indeed, I mean, some of the narrative, and you've heard it, some of the narrative oh, yeah. now is, you know, Trump nominated or the Trump endorsed candidates are crazy and, you know, we should have known better. We did this back in the, general. You know, I'm not a witch. Remember that? I'm not a witch. And, yeah. and, uh, but, but I looked at the macro and I still go by that number. And, um, you know, I asked Robert last week and you guys, I mean, I reported this to you Walker, um, Laxalt, Vance, Masters, Oz better or less than 50% that they win or lose. And Robert said better than 50 that every one of those win. But he's still hinged on, or he's still predicating that projection on the uh, the macro number, wrong track, wrong right track, wrong track, and presidential approval. Back in a minute. You know, when you think of the realities, and we've had a week to digest and, and kind of um, conclude whatever it is we conclude, and we've concluded a lot of different things. Uh, we disagree about a lot of these aspects and components of the uh, of the agreement and what happened over the weekend and uh you and charles was talking about or were talking about the uh, the republicans that were identified as those who received ppp loans and the white house comparing you know the forgiving of those loans to the student debt forgiveness there's yeah, no they, comparison they to, there they tried to call them out they're trying to it seems like create that conflict well, right? I mean, of course well, they, they want you to be consumed they, they want you to be 
I'm sidetracked. You, you don't pay attention to what the real problem is, but rather, you know, they got this and you got that, or you got this and they got and to Charles's uh, something different. Point. They just pointed out the Republicans that took PPP loans and got their loans forgiven. Uh, they didn't seem to list any Democrats, so that is a very important point to me. But here's the frustration I have: political. And, and this is, I mean, I, you know, uh, okay, we're having a debate about whether or not to forgive student debt. We're not having a debate about how did we create this problem, right? I mean, how many how many voices from higher education have you heard? None. The higher education lobby. I've not heard anybody say anything. You know what I can tell you? They're hunkering down. I mean, they're afraid this may be a moment in time where some of this um, absurdity is revealed and, and some new model is uh, the, the way we move forward. I mean, I, I don't know that that happens, but they're basically um, playing their cards close to the vest, kind of hunkering down. And there's kind of a... Um, I mean, there's an old saying in American politics, don't argue with a fool, especially if, if you have a foolish argument. Um, and I don't think they have an argument to make. Um, so J.D. Vance is the only Republican um, that I've heard say, Let, let's get to the crux of the problem. And the crux of the problem is that the, the, the education cartel, the higher education cartel, has conspired with the government to create a financial arrangement that is fleecing the American public. Whether you're whether you're borrowing money to go to college or are you backstopping the debt of those who borrowed money to go to college? I mean, at the end of the day, the debt's ours. I mean, whether you go to college or not. I mean, I get the argument that a lot of people are making today. Why should I, as somebody who was never going to college, pay for someone's education who did? You shouldn't. You absolutely shouldn't. I mean, that's an absurd argument to make. There's no defending that. But but the problem is we're tending to get angry with one another. Um well, you may not you may not have gotten your student loan forgiven, but you got a PPP note forgiven. You see where I'm headed? So all of a sudden, Dave's mad with Ken, and Ken's mad with Larry, and Larry's mad with with Mike, and Mike's mad with Charles, and we're not paying attention to the culprits in all of these um, shenanigans, and that is the federal government. Why is a Republican not introduced legislation today or over the weekend that addresses that problem? Because they're bought and sold. I mean, that's who that's how the the lobby system works that's how the consulting class works um how in the world are we a week down the road and a conservative republican not introduce legislation that says we're abolishing the federal student loan program it's obvious how we got in this mess and we're abolishing it in its current construct we may come up with some sort of grant system that allows academically inclined kids from places that don't have much money or families that don't have much money to make sure we don't let those kids fall through the crack. I mean, you're nodding your head. You're a conservative Republican. Mm -hmm. You'd be supportive of that. I'd be supportive of that. Those who have performed academically but don't have the financial resources should not be excluded from going to college. Okay, sign me up. I mean, I thought that's what endowments were. I thought that's what, you know, some of these, um, in other words, I thought when you gave money to a university, that university was inclined to use that money to do some of those sorts of things. Uh, maybe they do, maybe they don't. But I think the if there's a list of people to be angry with, the student or those who owe the money are, yeah, I mean, there's some culpability. That's the word I keep using. They're not innocent. They're not completely and totally innocent. They lived, um, excuse me, they entered into an absurd financial agreement, an egregious, grotesque, financial agreement but they were young by and large and the parents of those kids didn't want that kid to fall through the cracks i understand that 
I mean, I'm perfectly sympathetic to that in the weirdest way imaginable. But all of a sudden, instead of us focusing our energy on higher education in the government, we're focusing on those who got their student loans forgiven and those who had the PPP loans. In other words, the business guy says, that makes no sense that we're forgiving $40 million student loans to the tune of $10,000 per. And the $40 million say, well, it makes no sense that you got a loan from the federal government that you didn't have to pay back to keep your business afloat. The government calls both. I mean, the government is the reason. If you listed the top five reasons, Kerry listed the top four drivers that he think will be in the uh, in the NASCAR Final Four, so to speak, at um at Phoenix. I kind of agree with the four. I don't know if I agree with Harvick. Uh, I think Hamlin, Larson, and Elliott. I mean, they've proven week after week after week how good they are. But it's a little bit, you know, you got to pick an underdog in every yeah, dynamic. Harvick can win it all. But if you looked at the top two reasons why college costs so much today. It's not a kid signing a, um, a grotesque financial arrangement to borrow money he doesn't have and, and probably never will have to pay the loan back. I mean, that's not the, the nasty part of this is the deal the government's made with higher education. Higher education is made with the government. So, so the PPP um, dynamic entered the equation. See, I didn't hear that. You said you heard the White House officially I saw it on Twitter. say, you know, um, yeah, these Republicans are complaining about the forgiving of student debt, but yet they got money for their businesses. But I mean, the government shuts your business down. And to, to compare the two, I mean, let, let's be honest with one another. I mean, you, you fellow liberals out there, I mean, there are a few of you out there to listen, and we, you know, we have some call in every now and then. Um, the PPP was always structured, it was voted on when the law was passed. It was clearly defined as a forgivable loan if you use the money for certain things, the primary thing being pay your employees to not work. In other words, we're shutting your business down. Um, we're, we're, we're barricading you from your customer, but we want you to keep these employees intact. We don't want everybody to not have a job all at once. Well, I mean, if you, if you, if you, it's weird what they did. But it's kind of understandable once you shut the economy down. Um, but but no one changed. I mean, no one broke a contract. Those who received the PPP money, nobody broke a contract. Um, you, you've got a guy that owns a restaurant. The, the government says you must close that restaurant down. But you got to figure out a way to keep your employees. And the guy says, I can't keep my employees if I can't generate revenue and I don't have money to pay my, my people to not work. And the government says, that's where we're coming in. We're going to make a deal with you, the business owner. We're going to create a, um, a loan program that will allow you to pay these employees to not work. But if you use that money we give you to pay your employees to not work, that loan will be forgiven. I mean, okay, the absurdity of that is, is beyond belief, but it's what we did. Once we decided to shut the economy down, we became, I don't know, Rev, um, beholden to the business owner. And that's so... Um, so instead of businesses going into bankruptcy, they at least had money coming in the door to pay the people to not work. Th this is different. I mean, the, the, the student loan is an agreement. I mean, it's a contract. I borrowed money to go to Carolina, borrowed money to go to Clemson, borrowed money to go to Duke, borrowed money to go to, to Georgia Tech. I've got an obligation to pay it back. Th there's culpability there. But, but once again, the government made the arrangement with 
um, the universities that they would take care. So, so here's what we need to do. You, you ready? I mean, I've concluded this because the Republicans aren't going to do it. I mean, it's pretty obvious. J.D. Vance is the only guy that has said anything remotely similar to what I think needs to and be he's done. He's not even elected yet. But he's he not no even power. elected. I mean, it, it, he has no power whatsoever. I mean, Mitch McConnell says it's egregious, it's immoral, it's all these other sorts of things, but they've done nothing. I mean, they, they've done nothing to address the problem. So here's what you need to do. I mean, let, let's, let's be pragmatic for a second. If a uh, 25% have no debt, or really 12, 25% have no debt, but 6% got scholarships, so 20% paid their way, right? I mean, two of 10 college students in America today paid their way. 25 have less than 20 grand in debt. Um, 45% have between 20 and $100,000 in debt. 5% have over 100K in debt. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to, from now on, moving forward, we're going to lend Dave Baker's kid or Kennard's kid X number of dollars to go to college, but the university is responsible for half of it. If, if, if Dave Baker's kid ends up with 40 grand in student debt, the university is responsible for 20 of that 40. I mean, that's skin of the game. You've got skin of the game. Uh, you're the one benefiting. You're getting all the money. I mean, whether it's lottery money, whether it's barred money, whether it's money out of um, mom and dad's pocket, the university gets all of the money. What, what are they doing with that money? See, that's where J.D. Vance says, if you listen to a longer part, nah, it wasn't on Tucker. But J.D. Vance was somewhere speaking about something, and that came up about student debt. And he said, if I'm elected, I'm going to ask the college presidents and even some board members to come and explain to us how you're spending this money. I mean, at one point in time, you were getting a buy with X. Now, now it takes you, you know, um, 70 or a multiple of 20 to do the same thing, to educate these young kids. Explain to maybe we're missing something. I mean, maybe it's insanely expensive to educate young people. Maybe there's a reason it's increased at a higher rate than um, health care. I mean, when you track inflation, track health care and higher education, I mean, it's off the chart. I mean, it, it is, um, it, it, I don't want to say it's funny because it's certainly not funny, but you can't help but chuckle a little bit when you know how involved government is in health care and you know how involved government is in higher education common denominator. and you see the trajectory of inflation and the rise in inflation and you see these two that have been so intertwined with government policy um the absurdity of that but but let's let's bring college presidents to washington let's let's allow them to appear before committees and let's let people like jd vance who may be a member of the senate ask questions sir please explain to us why the cost of a semester at the university of south carolina or the university of clemson has gone from um you know three thousand dollars to twenty five thousand i mean what it is it what, what is it that we're missing we can't make heads or tails of this I mean, we've tried to understand health care. We can't. We're trying to understand higher education, but we can't. But but please come and appear before a committee. And uh, we don't want to call you crooks and thugs and thieves in the night. I mean, we don't have any interest in that. There will be some of that. But let's have a constructive debate about um, asking these people who are responsible for running these universities, why is it so expensive today to educate a young person um, at Clemson, at South Carolina, at Northwestern, at Nebraska, at Texas, at Texas A&M, wherever. And then let's let's get dig a little deeper and say, what do you do? I mean, let's have the president of Harvard or Yale, um, who have $100 billion between the two endowments. Um, Mr. President of Harvard, what do you do with that $60 billion? I mean, what is that money set aside for?
Is it invested? What sort of interest does it make? What do you do with the interest? I mean, it's tax exempt. I mean, that, that's kind of the, I mean, if you want to really get to criminality, <laughs> you know, you, you've got a public university that has $60 billion in an endowment that doesn't pay any taxes on the proceeds of the endowment. It's a charitable endowment. What, what do you do with that money? Please explain to us, the lawmakers, because we're trying to make college affordable. We believe that a, a better educated public is a better America. We're trying to really dig in, but we can't have $1.7 trillion in student debt. We can't go $100 billion in the hole every year. We can't have 45% of default deferment or some delayed payment program. We've got to revamp this program. We're hoping you can be a part of creating a solution to, to, to the, um, the ever-growing problem because all we've done is forgiven debt with zero, and I'm talking about not one or two or three percent, with zero percent effort to address the ills of the system, that's where we expect the Republicans to do something. It's really kind of an illustration in why Republican voters are so frustrated with their conservative-leaning party or their conservative-biased party. I mean, if you say you're conservative and you say you're for being responsible for taxpayer dollars, then how have we gone a week and nobody offered any sort of reasonable proposal and how to reform the way we fund higher education. Once again, I don't know what the answer is. I mean, I, I think I could be one of 10 or 12 or 15 to kind of um, debate. I mean, Jim and I argued a little bit about it. Larry and I've argued a little bit about it. You and I've argued a little bit. Uh, Rev and I argued a good bit last week about what should be done or not be done because he felt like um, the kids have been taken advantage of. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you think the system is taking advantage of the kid I'm and the sure parents? And, uh, and I don't disagree with that. I certainly don't disagree. But you do also believe that there's a, a morality part of this, that if you borrow money and you subject yourself to the requirements of that contract, you probably ought to do what you can to pay it back. Mm-hmm. So, so here we are with, with good and decent moral people a bit conflicted in what they believe needs to happen or not. But let's address the problem. And I'll swing for the fence. I'll forgive. I mean, if I were king of the world, I would forgive all of it. $1.7 trillion of student debt goes away. Nobody owes Jack. But we're never doing it again. There will never be another dollar of student debt guaranteed by we the people. There will never be one red cent of exposure the American taxpayer has to funding a kid going to the college of their choice. I mean, that's a, that's a big swing. And 1.7, I mean, put it on the put it on the stack over there with the other 30.5 uh, trillion. I mean, we'll just add to the balance. But but I think it I think the 1.7 forgiven today saves us five trillion, six trillion. It's a hundred billion a year. I mean, we're kind of upside down about a hundred billion a year in the funding of students. I mean, it's just absurd that we've allowed it to get here. Um, and I, I wish we could archived shows six or seven or eight years ago when I said, eventually you will bail the, the, the universities out. I mean, eventually, you know, think about this. Harvard has $60 billion that they can access if they choose to, but they're letting you, the taxpayer, subsidize the forgiving of however much debt Harvard will be forgiven. Lawrence Tribe is a law professor at Harvard. He tweeted last week, thank you, President Biden for the relief you've given to many, many, many of my young students who have not made their way in the world yet. I'm paraphrasing, not very loosely. I mean, that, that's pretty much what he said. So so the 
the welder in Pamplico today is going to work and a certain percentage, it's a small percentage, but a certain percentage of their, their earnings will go to pay off someone who just graduated from Harvard Law, borrowed you know, enough money to get a law degree, and now can't find a job that gives them the ability to pay back. I mean, young lawyers don't make a lot of money because we're kind of pumping out lawyers, just like we're pumping out college graduates. That, that's the big problem. And Jim and I talked a little bit about it last week, these false economies that have been created around th- this flawed model. I, I said earlier, how many, how many, how many fewer chicken sandwiches does Chick Fil A sell if there are six thousand fewer students at Clemson, ten thousand fewer students at the University of South Carolina? What, what is a house rent for in one of these adjacent neighborhoods to USC if there are ten thousand fewer students? How many cases of beer are not sold at convenience stores on campus? How many, um, how many food contracts are, you know, um, 30% less next year than they were this year? Uh, and I guess the answer is to continue to let the government subsidize it, to continue to allow we, the people, to be on the hook for whatever uh, the number is, to infinity and beyond, <laughs> I guess is where we're headed. <laughs> to quote Buzz yeah, Lightyear. Yeah, take a break. Back in a minute. <laughs> Six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Here is Linda in Florence. Good morning, Linda. Lynn, I, I have a question. Has there been anything said about how this debt is going to be paid off and how the um, money will be um, directed to and who it will be directed to for the college debt? Now, if it goes directly to the individuals, that owe the debt, how do we know that they're going to apply it to that debt? No, that the, the, the debt will be forgiven electronically. There'll be no issuing of checks. There there'll be, be no, no transfer of, of checks. No, there'll, okay. be, there'll be no transfer of funds. Thank you, Linda. Appreciate that. All of this will be electronically. And um, yeah, there, there'll be, um, I guess there's a big database somewhere that shows how much you owe. Uh, I don't know how what sort of form you'll fill out. You know, how much money you make, how long you've been there, how much money your wife makes, how long she's been there. Um, I got no idea about the details of that, but there'll be no transferring of funds. There'll be no, um, in other words, if you've got $100,000 in student debt, 
nobody's going to transfer a ten thousand dollar you know ACH or you know transfer into your account. It'll be um it'll be clerically credit, kept. credit the balance. Yeah, it'll be credit the ballots somewhere in a out of the ether. I would assume you know, you know where um where they keep all those sorts of records uh, and maintain all those sorts of records. But um I do know that to be the case. There will be no checks written, no money dispersed. It'll be just kind of a um a digitally forgiven um amount. And, and once again, I don't know how they validate who's making what, you know, how much money you I mean, obviously the, the amount of student debt you have will be um pretty easy to trace, but income and you know, spousal income and all these other sorts of, I I don't have any idea um how that goes along or, you know, it, it mean probably another government agency. That's maybe what the eighty seven new eighty seven thousand new IRS agents could be responsible for is um helping forgive student mm. debt. I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, Rev, when I think a lot about this, and you and I were talking about the macro, you know, I mean, if we live in a nation today that um that Joe Biden can get reelected, I mean, just stick with me for a second. He's a frail, feeble old man. I mean, nobody can debate that. You can debate whether he's got dementia. You know, so some of the um some of the liberal Democrats say, no, he's fine. I mean, he, obviously he's a little older and he's not quite as, as sharp as he was at one time. But you can't dispute that he's old and frail and feeble. And you can't dispute that inflation is rampant. Prices for everything are higher. Uh, gas prices, even though they come down a little bit, they, they got up to $5 and more. You can't dispute any of that stuff. So well, I mean, whoever's in charge probably would be blamed and probably should be sent pack let me 70 percent of the country believe we're on the wrong track i mean that's a historical high number so are you believing some of these polls that are saying republicans don't really well, have the advantage that they think i, they I do? don't know what to make of these i mean robert says don't believe those polls um and, and the the poll robert always goes back to is the jamie harrison lindsey graham poll remember that poll that had him in a dead heat and i remember thinking i mean i said it over the air i said if, if lindsey graham loses to jamie harris i'll resign tomorrow i'll never do another radio show and lindsey wins by what 10 percentage points so you know are the are the pollsters in on the fix are the pollsters trying to condition the american people to believe something that you know uh, don't believe your lying eyes so to speak i don't have any idea but we're, we're about to the midterms i mean labor day is this weekend and it's campaign on post Labor Day. I mean, when you get to Labor Day, it's I mean, it's it's all hands on deck from there until that Tuesday in November. Um, if seventy one percent of Americans believe that we're on the wrong track, and only forty one percent or forty one point nine percent, forty two percent approve of the job Joe Biden's doing, how do the Democrats win elections? Oh, that macro has been never never has that macro been so one sided. It's been one sided before. But never before has the uh, the approval rating of the president been at about forty percent, and the wrong track been in the seventies. I mean, that, those are wave elections. And when I read some of the media reports now, be careful about these wave elections. We're not going to have a wave election. In, in fact, the Democrats could pick up some seats if we live in a country. And I guess that's the argument I'm trying to make. If we live in a country where inflation is rampant. The president's popularity is only about 41 or 2 percent. Seventy percent of Americans believe we're on the wrong track, and they still win elections. I mean, there's got to be a reason to be suspicious. What's going on here? I mean, what is in the mindset of the voter, or what is in the machinations of the, the voting process? Mm. You know, that, that can be – I mean, there are a lot of places to be real curious about that dynamic. And once again, I don't trust the polling. I mean, I just simply do not. I looked uh, yesterday at some Trafalgar number. I mean, everything's within the margin of error. I mean, it's real close. 
why is why is Masters behind in Arizona? I mean, why is uh, Walker behind in Georgia? Because to me, it doesn't matter how flawed a candidate they are. They're not a Democrat. I mean, if the Democrats are responsible for inflation, if the Democrats are responsible for all this nonsense and, and lunacy in government, then I'm just not voting for a Democrat. I mean, historically, that's the way independents have responded. Will they or will they not respond the same way this time? And if they don't, why? That's the point I'm trying to make. If the, if the independent voter in America today does not vote Republican, why? I mean, if you're an independent, there, there's never been a more convincing argument to make to vote. I mean, it doesn't matter about Herschel Walker. Forget how much he's, um, how flawed a candidate he is, or Blake Masters, or, or Trump-endorsed candidates, or find better, better candidates. If you're an independent, what in God's name leads you to believe that Walker would do a worse job than is being done today? Or, or Masters would do a worse job than is being done today? And, and, you know, another part of this argument is, as much as we talk about the media, they still have impact. I mean, they still have influence. Social media, the, the, what I'd call the mainstream legacy media, corporate media is how I think. Uh, Limbaugh called it mainstream. I think, uh, who calls them corporate media? Uh, it might be uh, Gingrich. may refer to them as the corporate media. Uh, one of the same. But, but do they still hold that sort of sway in American political debate? Maybe they do. But um, we'll find out. But, but I keep looking at those two numbers. 41.9 approval rating, 70.5 you know, wrong track number, and I'm going like, the Republicans are going to win a bunch of seats. How do they not win a bunch of seats unless you're buying in to this narrative of deeply flawed candidates, you know, uh, the, the, the Trump, uh, I don't know, Rev, the, the, the Trump dilemma is still a part what about of Dobbs. I, I just don't buy that. I don't buy that Dobbs has been that impactful. I mean, I think there's certain districts that, that are, you know, but I, I just, for the life of me, when you go to the, I saw a quote yesterday or a comment yesterday in one of the Wall Street Journal. Um, the guy said, talking about Biden and student debt and all these other sorts of things. And he said, my wife goes to the grocery store. My wife got sick and I go to the grocery store and it's staggering how expensive groceries are. I mean, that guy's not really thinking about Dobbs. He probably has an opinion about abortion. He probably has a pretty strong held opinion about abortion. He's a subscriber to the Wall Street Journal. I mean, he's a little more uh, interested than most people are, not quite as as passive or casual about his politics. But but that guy, when he, I mean, going to the grocery store and something you know normally costs you forty bucks, costs you seventy bucks to get out of there. Uh, two little plastic bags of groceries. I, I don't know that Dobbs is a big deal when it comes to that. In other words, you know, right track, wrong track. I don't know that Dobbs is impacting those numbers. But but and I'm normally not that confused, but I'm terribly confused by what the polls are saying. I mean, once again, Kahaley says, don't pay it any attention. He's told me that multiple times. Don't pay those polls any attention. They mean nothing. But our job is to um, converse with people every morning for four hours, and polls are a central theme sure. of what we talk and, about and as deeper. we head closer to an election. And Robert keeps going down the road across tabs, and, you know, I, I don't understand that. I mean, I'm not a pollster. I was the guy you wind up and send him out on the stage and try to get people to vote for you. Robert's kind of the guy behind the room, you know, calculating and deciphering what needed to be done or not. But I just look at those two numbers and I look at some of the um, some of the polling in these swing states and I'm going like, there's a huge disconnect here. Well, what am I missing? And I honestly don't know. I know I'm missing something, but I don't know what it is 
I'm missing. Let's go to the phone. Jeff in Florence. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning. How are you guys? Hey, Jeff. Hey, um, so uh, Dave, Dave hit it on the head a little bit there. Um, whether you want to acknowledge Dobbs or not, that was a massive overreach. Um, the traditional Republican Party would have never uh, stacked the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade. Um, if you if you look at look at Kansas, um, I have family that lives in Kansas. Um, the amount of young women registering to vote, and they're not voting for the conservative party in this situation. Look at Texas. Look at the age of the average voter, and look at Georgia, the age of the average voter, and the demographics. It's all young women being motivated to get out and vote. Um, so Dobbs has a major part. I know you don't see it. I don't see it, Jeff, and I could be wrong. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm nearly 60 years old, and I could be so detached from that. And I, I, I just I didn't imagine. Now, now, Robert said a couple of years ago, we got to be careful with Roe v. Wade. Um, oh, I, I just didn't see it coming. I didn't. Yeah. Um, there, there's a reason when George Bush, you know, go back, go back Republican administration after Republican administration, they didn't touch it. They, you know, when they had power in the, in the, in the, in the Congress, when they had the, the Senate and the, um, the Senate and they had, uh, the House of Representatives, they didn't touch it. When they had a majority on the Supreme Court, whether you want to acknowledge or not, they've had a, a majority on the Supreme Court for years. But people like John Roberts, they didn't touch it. Trump, Trump was the one that nominated people who would touch it. And it's, it's going to hurt the Republican Party, whether, whether you see it or not yet. That's a major issue. And the other issue is I think there's, you know, whether you agree the election was stolen or not, you have to admit that there was a, there was a, a very large percentage uh, vote increase. Trump got a vote increase, and so did Biden. Whether you believe he won or didn't, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about voter turnout was through the roof. And we've, we've gotten to a point where the parties are so far apart that everybody knows they have to get out and vote. So I think you'll see it again that we're going to have an unprecedented level of voting, even these midterm elections. Look at how many people are voting in a midterm off-cycle election. That's kind of an interesting point. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate that. I'll agree on the midterm voting. I mean, the, the turnout has been much higher than I anticipated, and I could be wrong on Roe. I mean, you know, I've been wrong a lot in my life. I didn't believe that Roe would be that impactful in this election. I mean, I really didn't. The presidential election uh, may or may not, because presidents appoint Supreme Court justices. Now, they're confirmed by the Senate uh, with the advice and consent process. Um, I mean, Jeff may be onto something here. I mean, you know, Dobbs may be Dobbs may be playing a much bigger role than I ever imagined it would in the 2022 midterms. Um, I still think it was the constitutional decision. I think it, I still think it was the right decision to make. Um, but but he's right. You know, conservative justices historically have taken a pass. I mean, it's been on the book since the 70s, roughly 50 years of Roe v. Wade being the law of the land. And, and we actually said this on the airwaves. Could the Republicans be able to take yes for an answer? I mean, in South Carolina today, the bill being debated is going to force a woman 
who's been raped or had an incestual incestuous relationship um, carry that baby, have that baby. Uh, now, that's not the bill, and I doubt that ends up in the final version. But right now, in a red state like South Carolina, the only exemption is life of the mother. The exemption is not there for rape, not there for incest. And that was always the concern um, a lot of pragmatic Republicans had about not being able to take yes for an answer. Um, we'll see. You know, is Jeff right? I, I don't know. Um, I mean, we will have elections. Some of the polls will be right. Some of the polls won't be right. But when you look at the macro, and I know I'm being a bit redundant here, but when you look at the two numbers that I've always paid close attention to in midterms, and they've been historically reliable, what is the president's approval rating? It sucks right now. What is the right track, wrong track number in America today? Over 70% of Americans believe that we're on the wrong track. But the polling shows that the Republicans are struggling in some of these um some of these swing states it may be Roe. i don't know i'm hoping <laughs> and fingers crossed that the polls are wrong take a break back in a minute 8436610937 i thought we went to the moon back in the 60s and we're trying to go to the moon again yeah i mean why are we doing something i mean we're doing something today that we did but I mean, that's not progress right that's not the advancement of mankind and humanity. One small step for man, is, one giant step for mankind. Isn't that going to be the launch point for the trip to Mars? I don't have any idea. I mean, I, you know, I don't know. I know we went to the moon in 1960 something right. with the Apollo program, and we're trying to do something that we did that long ago again. I mean, what are we trying to do? It's a new plan, I'm sure. I, I think it's all about Free Mars. We did not go to. come on (laughs) you're right we didn't we didn't um but we were we were led to believe we did um you know it'd be interesting how many people now i mean you wouldn't verbally answer this question and this may go back to some of the polling i told rev during the break the point jeff made and um and i'm jeff may be right hope he's not but he may be um that you know roe is going to end up costing the republicans uh, a big majority in the house and senate I mean, I hope that's not the case, but we shall see. But but it, it would stand to reason. I mean, the one that there, the one reason Trump over overperformed in the poll is people didn't want to verbally express their support, right? I mean, the online polling was always better for Trump. You know, I'm not saying I vote for Trump, but I'll press the button. You know, in the online poll, um, do you support abortion or not? I mean, a lot of people don't want to verbally say, "Yeah, I support abortion." I mean, some do. And some are very comfortable, but there's an element in America that just doesn't like saying what they believe about certain things. Trump was one uh, political candidate that most Americans just didn't like. They, they'd rather write it down, you know, than verbalize it. Abortion may be similar to that. Um, and there may be some hidden um, some hidden support of the, the not overturning Roe v. Wade. That's a weird way to say that, but it's the only way. I could get there. Yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of an interesting debate. And if the polling's right, that will probably be a big driver as to why it's fundamentally different. Hey, it's time for our Takes Mondays to make Friday's trivia question. Uh, Pepsi of Florence has been kind enough to donate some some Pepsi products, some T-shirts. So um, in the spirit of college football, you ready? Mm-hmm. Uh, in the spirit of college football, here's the trivia question today. And then the, the first answer to correctly identify um this stadium wins a six pack of pepsi product a couple of takes mondays to make fridays t-shirt courtesy pepsi of florence biggest college football stadium in america largest 
seating capacity in all of college football is what stadium? 843-661-0937. What university? I don't know if you need to name the stadium. What university has the biggest, as it relates to capacity, football stadium in all of America? Do we have a call? Okay, we do. Hi, you're on the air. You know the answer? Rose Bowl. Nope, not the biggest. 843-661-0937. The stadium with the largest capacity in all of college football. Hi, you're on. You know the answer? Big House, Michigan. Michigan. You're right. 107,601. Who is this and where are you calling from? Uh, Ken, this is David. This is how I could get on the show today. Hey, Bye. David. Thank you, my man. Appreciate hearing from you. 843. Well, I mean, I need to get the number out, but Michigan number one. Penn State, number two, Ohio State, number three, Texas A&M, number four, all have over 100,000 seats. Um, Ohio State actually took out about 2,500 seats. They had about 105,000. That's down to 102,780 because they sense that a lot of people are going to start. If you build a college football stadium today, how many seats would you put in it? 70,000? 65,000. I mean, you would put 85 or 90 because very few games are going to draw those large crowds. Most people kind of like the big television, the high definition, the, the what do you call it, Rev? The, um, the ULD or whatever. I mean, you, you, you're more familiar <laughs> Ultra with this. HD, yeah. 4K. Ultra HD and the 4Ks and all that. And the air conditioning. The air, there you go. <laughs> and the, uh, the not having to buy those tickets. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.